This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. And uh, we're going to get right into it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed Mitch Brisker, uh, former director, not Sea Org, not even uh, Scientology staff as such, but somebody who worked uh, right under David Miscavige for decades as a film director, creative producer, and uh, museum designer. He had a lot of hats over the years in Scientology. And we covered a lot of his story and some of the things that he had encountered in our first podcast. And today we're going to go over even more. So, hi, Mitch. Welcome back to my show. Hey, Chris. Wow. Great to see you again. Yes. What do you got? <laughs> okay, we're going to let's just jump into it. I have okay. received some very, very positive feedback on our first interview. Um, people are absolutely intrigued by some of the things that you've had to say and the fresh viewpoint that you bring to this. And so, and so, and frankly, so do I. I, I have been absolutely fascinated. So, um, so I thought. I had a I had a question from one of my Patreon supporters. I've got, you know, about a billion questions for you about, you know, processes at gold. But first, you had mentioned a story about a woman, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Lenny Riefenstahl? Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And this is something you were kind of intrigued and fascinated by. You wrote about this in your manuscript. We talked about this a bit last time. And mm -hmm. do you want to kind of flesh this out a bit? What, what is it about this story that you find so fascinating connecting with Hubbard? Well, a few things. I mean, first and foremost, you know, I was sitting in an op my office at Golden. I was reading her biography uh, before and, I And who was she? Lenny Riefenstahl. Okay, Lenny Riefenstahl was, uh, she was, and she's best known for her two films, Triumph of the Will mm -hmm. and Olympiad, which she was uh, personally contracted uh, by Adolf Hitler to make just prior to the war. I think they, they made, she made them just prior to the, to the invasion of Poland, the uh, Triumph of the Will. Everybody's seen parts of it because it's probably the most, you know, pieces of it are lifted out for every. Nazi documentary you can imagine. I originally found out about her, studied her in film school because these two films are considered to be the greatest propaganda films of all time. They really are amazing. Um, but I was interested in her. I was happened to be reading her autobiography when I was up at Gold. And I never, I had no idea that she had any connection to Hubbard. That was just stunning to me. And yeah, I never thought about her as a Nazi. I thought about her as an artist who had been kind of seduced by this opportunity uh, to to have these resources and to make a documentary about this emerging power, which was the Third Reich. Like it was so, so seductive. And because I had been sort of uh, conscripted, although, you know, it was all, I wanted to do it because I was a Scientologist. But even though I was uh, doing this work uh, with Scientology, I was just curious because it's sort of like an artist, an artist who is seduced by an opportunity uh, and is working in the ideology, uh, is working towards the pushing in a particular ideology. Like I was really fascinated reading about artists, you know, like Michelangelo who worked for the church and, you know, the people who weren't just doing their own work, they weren't just being artists, but they sort of joined up with 
groups or movements. Maybe they were pressured into it or they had to it. Like, I, I think Michelangelo might have had difficulty eating if he didn't take work for the Catholic Church from the Catholic Church. So I already had this interest. You understand? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, in her as a filmmaker, and uh, so then I'm reading this book and I come across this passage where she says. It talks about this, uh, her assistant, Philip Hudsmith, who was a student at St. Hill, and he he was obsessed with remaking her biggest successful film, which was pre-war, uh, pre-World War II. She'd made a film called The Blue Light, right? I think we talked about this the other day. We did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm just covering the same ground, but... Well, we, we got up to the we, we talked about the business of how this had come up uh, while you were at Gold and how you had actually written something to Miscavige about this. And, be, and in, within an hour, you had a full folder of information about Hubbard's correspondence with. Uh, yeah, uh, with I was Lenny. completely shocked because I thought yeah. I had found something like, hey, did, maybe nobody knows this because, you know, people supposedly would find these references to Hubbard out there in the world that nobody, you know, that just got discovered, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then they'd go and they'd interview the person, whatever, Lenny Riverstall was dead by then. Um, so I sent it up thinking, hey, check this out, man. Hubbard got mentioned in the autobiography of this very fa famous filmmaker. And what I got back was, oh yeah, we know all about it. Here's all the correspondence. Here's the script that Hubbard wrote. It's the, uh, you know, I, I if, I didn't think of it, but, you know, I could scan the cover and send it to you. We could put it on screen. It says modern version by L. Ron Hubbard, right, mm -hmm. of Lenny Riefenstahl's film. Uh, and, I mean, this was a woman that, you know, she claimed not to know about the atrocities, but she had the – she went back to making features after the two Nazi propaganda films. Still, it was during World War II when she made another feature. I forget the name of it. But she used – Romani people, you know, aka gypsies, that were that were being held at a concentration camp near her location, and the SS delivered a bunch of Romani internees for her to use as extras. Okay, right. So you, you can't tell me, you know, she never apologized for. She said, "I didn't know about it." And then she said, what do I have to apologize for? My films won all the top honors, so she was like, um, "Wow." She, yeah, exactly. she, she kind of so, missed the forest for the trees a little bit there, I think. A little bit. I think so. A little yeah, a little bit. But, yeah. but she, uh, remember, this was 1960. Mm -hmm. So that was only, what, 15 years after mm -hmm. the Nazis were defeated? Mm -hmm. So 15 years ago, that was, I, I think the movie Titanic came out more than 50 years ago, 15 years ago. And everybody certainly remembers that movie, right? So mm -hmm. it's like World War II is pretty fresh in people's minds. Yeah. Even though you know, it was starting to fade, and Lenny Riefenstahl is, uh, she's very responsive to her, Philip Hudspeth, the Scientologist. She's very responsive to his, um, his interest in remaking the blue light. I mean, supposedly he was obsessed with it because she's thinking, well, th maybe this will be a way to reboot my career, my filmmaking career. An English version, right, of the blue light is very acclaimed film when it came out. What, what just because I have no familiarity at all, and probably yeah. most of my audience might not. What what yeah. is this film? Oh, the blue light was a feature film. It's on actually it's on YouTube. Oh. Uh, it's a it's a silent film. It's a fascinating film. It's um, you know it it might not be a good meal for people who don't have the context of like who aren't sort of film history buffs. 
Mm. Like, you know, want to go back and look at great silent films like, you know, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which, mm. Caligari, which you know, every significant film director, you know, from Tarantino to Spielberg will make references to. So it's kind of a very, you know, if, if, if you don't enjoy watching those kind of stuff, you may not like it, but it's 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 a fascinating film and it's in a genre. They call them the German mountain movies and they're, they focus around mountaineering and superstition and the supernatural because the Germans have this, they have a lot of legends and myths that are associated with the Bavarian Alps. So she was very popular. I mean, she was a star when Hitler, you know, went to her through Goebbels, who was, you know, the propaganda minister and said, you know, the Fuhrer wants you to direct two films for him. And, and he'll give you everything you want. Do you remember? Was uh huh. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say these. The footage, the film focuses around a Nuremberg rally. That's the rally where you have tens of thousands uh-huh. of Germans and German soldiers, and they're very tightly regimented, and they have these huge, sort of I don't know structures with big banners. Right. Oh, I, I think I think uh, Mike Rinder may have taken screenshots from those when he talks about his when he when he compares the Scientology events to Nuremberg rallies. <laughs> I think well, he's taken screenshots of those banners and the. Yeah, and, you know. I, it's exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah. When I went to the IES event. Um, I mean, those shots come out of Triumph of the Will. Right. Lenny Riefenstahl, she didn't just direct that film. She designed the Nuremberg Rally. Okay. How interesting. So are you saying that she was something like the Scorsese of German cinema before no, this not at happened? All. not at all. Because she wasn't she that was... famous. She wasn't um, oh, that if well you're known. talking in terms of fame, I, I I took your question stylistically. Oh no, no, I'm talking in terms of you mentioned she was a famous filmmaker, and then Hitler grabbed her up for you know. Um, oh yeah, the, she was a big star. She was a well. household word. So she was a known director, oh, yeah. filmmaker well, no, in no, Germany. Uh, yeah, no, the the Blue Light was her directorial debut, which she also started. Got it. But she was also uh, she had been a, a film star as an actor. And she was also a singer and a dancer. She was a star in Germany when Hitler hired her. Got he, it. he didn't introduce her to Germany like they knew who she was. No, I get that now. So she made one of the most popular films of the era, The Blue Light. Yeah, it's a hugely, immensely popular film. So, so having made Triumph of the Will and this other film, which I've, I, yeah, and I haven't, um, you know, obviously watched those movies uh, through. I've only seen the clips that everybody has seen. Right, they're on I, YouTube. You can watch them all. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, yeah. what was it years and years later before you knew about this Hubbard connection? You're sitting there reading her autobiography. I'm just curious. What was it that was compelling you to study her work or study her while you were working at Gold? Well, okay. I had been fascinated by her since I, since the 70s when I was in film school, ah. where I was first introduced to her. Uh-huh. So when I saw her book, I was like, oh, Lenny Riefenstahl wrote a book. I'm going to read it. It had been out for maybe five years when I picked it up. Oh, okay. Big, big got book. it. Okay, like this book it. is like, it's as big as the Dianetics book. It's a three inch thick autobiography. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff in it. So I read about a lot of directors. I mean, I just like, I read about a lot of films and filmmakers and of it was course. just a thing. I was just really curious. Right. So it wasn't, but Lenny Riefenstahl in particular, because she made propaganda films and she raised propaganda to a whole new majestic 
level of art that nobody had ever done. Okay. I mean, if you if you Google her name and look at some of the shots of her working on the Nuremberg rallies and some of the kinds of techniques and shots she was employing, the world had never seen this before. And I was working for the church when I for gold when I read the book, and I was making propaganda films and right. training films. And and so and you know, I'm very cautious about people thinking I'm equating the Third Reich Scientology, because I'm not. I mean, let's face it, Scientology doesn't kill Jews. Oh, they no, no. Much, it would be a, it would be a false else, equivalency. Yeah, that they, there are absolutely analogies and parallels to draw in terms of propaganda, yeah, but that's in terms not of the, cultic that's not what thinking. This is about. But this, this no, is, no, I get it. Yeah, 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 this is an analogy between me and Lenny Riefenstahl, not artistically, because I'm not, you know, I have never achieved that kind of artistic recognition. But in terms of uh, psychologically, in terms of the mentality of an artist going, ooh, 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 you want to give me unlimited resources and you want me to do this and I have this opportunity and you're telling me that I can have the entire German army and a, and a battery of camera people and I can design a rally to look like whatever I want. That's an irresistible proposition. That's sure. seductive. Yeah. So sure. So I, w I, was, I was interested in that mindset because I was interested in my own mindset. And yeah. then I'm reading this thing, and I come across this passage, and uh, the passage is pretty stunning. I mean, I put it in my book. You read it. Oh, yeah. yeah, passage, yeah. passage from her book about, you know, Dr. Hubbard and a million people that he's in charge of. <laughs> like, she, she, and that she was just as hyperbolic about her career as he was about his. I mean, these were two mm. people that, although she was a great artist, but they were, they were birds of a feather in terms of exaggerating their own, uh, having an exaggerated self-image. I think what I'm curious about is how this connects in your mind with your fascination with her propaganda films, you, Gold. I mean, you, you mentioned it a bit in terms of you were doing a very similar thing to what she was doing. Is this a parallel you see in your mind between her and, and your life? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm kind of loath to make it because I, it's like, I, I don't want to, anyone to think that I'm comparing her myself with her artistically because mm. I'm not at all. Mm. But yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, it's kind of like, I think all artists, I think maybe all people are interested in the journey of other people who are like themselves or who have a similar experience. They they're interested in knowing about their journey. Like I did a project with Michael Jackson and when I met him, it's a long story. I'm not going to go into it, but the hotel room I met him in, was filled with books of uh, famous people. Mm. Yeah, it was like living or dead, famous people living or dead. I'm make, I'm talking like 50 books, ton of books. Wow. And he, he was really fascinated with, um, with other people who had had this journey through super fame. Like what, you know, so I think people, and so just as a filmmaker, and I'm sort of way down here and I'm looking up at this towering character, Lenny Riefenstahl, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm I'm working really ideologically. Everything I'm doing, it has an ideological motivation. It doesn't have a purely artistic motivation, which is very different. And so I want to know what her experience was, right? right. Uh, I mean, you know, she was, I'm, I'm trying to think of her name, a very famous German uh, actress who came to America and became a movie star, was a good friend of... Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's and, you know, told her, you know, you got to get out. We're all getting out. Mm -hmm. You need to leave. We are all getting out. And she was like, no, I, I got this great gig working for 
Adolf, you know, I'm sticking around. So, um, yeah, Marlena, D- Marlena Dietrich is a person I was trying to think. I of. wondered if it was her, but I didn't want. Yeah, because yeah. they were cohorts and 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 they were friends and and right. you know all of the really talented people you know left Germany or they were murdered. So, um, all, so a lot of German filmmakers. That's a whole other story. The we have this very rich history that started in the late 30s and into the 40s. We have a very rich film history of American films that are done in the style of German Expressionism. And this is all of your film noir films, you know, Dial in for Murder, Double Indemnity, Strangers in a Train, all these great noir films that are done in a German Expressionist style. The reason we have that is because they all fled Nazi Germany and came to Hollywood. And it literally had a tremendous impact on on, on American filmmaking in a, in a big way. So how interesting! I have to um, comment on something here. If you'll if you'll indulge me for a moment, yeah, no problem. I did a podcast um, a year or two ago about Operation Paperclip, which I find to be one of the largest moral dilemmas of the 20th century, if not the if not the biggest one. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it's about. Yeah. Um, operation Paperclip was the military uh, operation that carried that Americans, uh, other Western powers, and Russia from the East carried out to distribute or figure out where the Nazi scientists were going to go mm. after the war. <laughs> this was the name, the official name of the whole thing. It was highly confidential. Yeah. Nobody knew much about it. It's all come out. And it was the genesis of and the reason why we had or have a space program is because Werner von Braun and his company of Nazi scientists, and that is what they were, were brought over here. And other Nazi scientists were taken over to East Germany and eventually Mm -hmm. over into Russia. Mm -hmm. And they did not have as as free of a time, you could say, as the ones who came over here. Right. But they were full-blown Nazis and they were full-blown scientists. And And a couple of them, including von Braun, was an absolute, you know, certifiable genius. The man was unbelievable. Yeah, he, he was the head you know? of their the Nazi rocket program. Oh, yeah. He was program. the man. He was the guy. And he was a great organizer and et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a lot of commentary. And it's worth commenting on right now here because we've been talking about uh, Rufenstahl here. That Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl, sorry. Yeah, so um, totally fine. This, there's a parallel to be drawn here, which is what I've been thinking about ever since you brought her name up. And that is that similar to how she embraced an ideology that maybe she didn't morally fully agree with, but she was able to curtain off the nasty parts in order to engage in the activity she wanted to engage in, which was filmmaking, storytelling, whatever. Uh, And she was given carte blanche, as you described. She was given like more power than she was ever going to have otherwise. And wouldn't this be a tremendous advantage to her personally? Wouldn't this be a dream realized, a goal, you know, a series of goals she could fulfill? We could right. say and describe Warner von Braun the exact same way. Here is a scientist who is a scientist first, an organizer second, a Nazi third. And here is this tremendous opportunity given to him by Hitler and his right. legions to forward and move forward the, the study of rocketry and science and chemistry in such a way yeah. that he never would have had otherwise. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean... I, <laughs> Uh, to give you a quote from uh, Philip K. Dick's book, The Man in the High Tower, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if Germany had won the war, if the Nazis had won the war, we would have gotten to the moon 20 years sooner. <laughs> well, that's so, exactly right. That yeah, actually so, is a factual uh, statement. But but what I was going to comment on about this was, you know, from my the way I look at the world and the way I think about things is I see the parallels here in terms of the mindset, in terms of the cultic behavior, in, in terms of how you have people who will commit themselves to a cause that maybe they believe in, maybe they don't totally believe in it, uh, but they certainly believe in their cause and it aligns enough with this thing that I can you know connect with it. And in both of their cases, the work was so amazing, so genius, so beyond, it rose beyond just the confines of the cult, the Nazis in this case, that, that they had staying power. They lasted, they, they lived on the strength of, of their skill set, <laughs> even beyond the ideology, where a lot of people who didn't really have anything else to bring to the picture didn't, you know? And I were able to shed the ideology enough following, you know, the disaster, at least enough to be able to not be persecuted or prosecuted by the by the world at large. And they went on to do other work. I don't know what Lenny did, but we know Von Braun was basically personally responsible for organizing up our space program here in the United States. And the fact of the matter is that the Internet wouldn't exist. Satellites wouldn't exist. GPS wouldn't exist. Almost nothing we have now would exist were those decisions not made back then to do what they did. And that's what I mean by the moral dilemma. It's it's Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm listening to you. you I'm listening to you unpack this in a way that 100% aligns with my understanding. Yeah. And yet I had never put it in that terms. But yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, I think unlike Von Braun, she spent a couple of weeks in a camp and then they let her go. Yep. Uh, and, you know, she spent the rest of her life trying to restart her filmmaking career and uh, did some significant books of photography, but never never did it. But, you know, she was like the, yeah, the, the moral dilemma uh, parallel is absolutely 100% correct that is the thing that i was kind of trying to decode for myself mm-hmm. you know i mean those people that came over like marlena dietrich who were like yeah, i'm getting out of here these people are bad mm-hmm. they brought great gifts great artistic gifts yep. to hollywood That's they right. gave us film noir i mean if you want like that is the reason why we had that great uh, black and white era known as film noir and see i never knew that you 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 mentioning that and i'm like wow i didn't know that i thought yeah there were there were directors and cameramen uh, otto von stroheim i'm trying to think of wow. there was a direct there was a, a cameraman who was very instrumental there's do you ever see the cabinet of dr caligari now we're doing film uh, history well we are a little bit and i'm willing to go down this road a little bit here only because i watched a nicholas cage movie the other night where he wouldn't shut up about it so i am oh, mildly curious about this movie okay. <laughs> the cabinet well, it, of dr caligari yeah it's it's actually <laughs> it 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 is significant because it's the first horror film ever made. Okay. Oh, is that it's okay? Because because uh, yeah, Nicholas Cage is the cab- quite the film student and he loves this movie. So yeah, 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 yeah. We all studied it in film school. <laughs> it's made if you watch it. It's made in a style called German expressionism. Okay. Which is a very specific style of expressionism. The painting, the Edward Munch's painting, The Scream. Yes. Which, you know, everybody knows that that is German Expressionism. Okay. Okay. That is in that school painting-wise. In terms of uh, photography and film, it's very stark black and white, off 
balance off kilter d- weird angles we call dutch angles yes you know and, which, which and battlefield they, earth was full of <laughs> yeah but not on purpose <laughs> i know i i'm just i'm yeah. just i'm just yeah, yeah. joking just a little accident- bit here. accidentally yeah. uh so yeah we got we had got great gifts from the germans we yeah. we got warner von braun who you know probably never really w- was a nazi but he just was like you you gonna give me the stuff to go to the moon? Uh, sign me on. Basically, and, uh, basically. Yeah. So yeah. We, we got we got great benefit from them both artistically and technologically. But uh, getting back to the Hubbard relationship, one yeah. Of so, one of the things that so interested me was that in reading this letter from Philip Hudsmith. Uh, I'm sorry, to Philip Hudsmith. This is this is uh, Hubbard's response to him. And when he when he was sent a, a telex or maybe a, some form of written communication where he was uh, asked if he would participate in this and he wrote a really fascinating letter back uh, where he he just gushed about the blue light. You know, what wonderful stuff this blue light is. And he gushed about his own filmmaking her career in Hollywood, which even, you know, by the historians inside the church will have documented it as lasting for 10 weeks. Right. Right. Usually when you have a job, the last 10 weeks, you've been fired. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't, we were, we, we have never been impressed by, uh, even when I was in the church, it was a hard pill for me to swallow that Hubbard was this, you know, he was presented uh, by by Sherman all the time, by Danny Sherman all the time as yeah. this, you know, brilliant filmmaker that took Hollywood by storm. And they had pictures of him with Clark Gable at an event. And he was always schmoozing with all, you know, he was name dropping the big stars all the time. And I, even as a Scientologist and Sea Org member, I had a hard time buying yeah. that story. It just never held, it never rang true for me. Yeah. Well, he managed to photobomb a few events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and get next to car cable. But um, yeah, we can kind of go through some of the actu- the actuality versus the hyperbole because mm-hmm. it's interesting. I mean, uh, so, but here you have these two people. So obviously Hubbard was a major propagandist. He really understood uh, uh, influence. Mm-hmm. And you had Lenny Riefenstahl who artistically was this magnificent artist who really knew how to propagandize. And you had both of them, you know, Hubbard had no filmmaking career. He's he's running St. Hill, so his filmmaking, quote unquote, filmmaking career is way behind him. And and Lenny Riefenstahl says for different reasons. And now they're coming together and they're thinking, hey, maybe an English version of this film will reboot my career. So the way he wrote back to Philip Hudsmith was like, he didn't say, hey, this would be great to reboot, but it reads like this would be great because, you know, people are remembering my box office and, you know, it would have been higher if Hollywood hadn't interfered with me. And he talks about this guy, Ed Mull, who was the the chief of, of, of Universal uh, for quite a number of years, starting maybe 15 years after Hubbard left Hollywood. So I'm like, why the hell is he doing that? Because he was the head of, uh, he wanted to teach him a lesson. He said in the letter, uh, and Ed Mould, he needs a lesson. Like he had some vendetta with the guy who was head of Universal 15 years after the 10 weeks that he spent in Hollywood. So um, I, I just I just found it strange because they were both kind of like, you know, maybe this will get my career restarted. I mean, he re- he wrote the script 
there is the modern version of in English of the blue light. Um, wow. As, yeah. As so rewritten what, what, by L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll <laughs> you, I'll, I'll, I mean, the Tony, significance uh, of that now takes more shape for me after all the backstory you've given me. So yeah. it's like, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm wondering, is it, would it be an, would it be equivalent to say, you know, uh, the Gone with the Wind as rewritten by L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, we're we talking about something of that significance, it, but dealing well, with I German cinema. So that, I, I don't think you can raise it to that level only okay, because fair enough. there's no equivalent to the Hollywood film market. I mean, no other. Got it. You know, maybe Britain comes close, but it, it, there's no other equivalent market, but it would be a very significant thing. I think it would be more like somebody... Um, doing an English version language of the of Mein Kampf. So, oh, wow. I would be more, I mean, the, the Blue Light wasn't a Nazi film. It's all about mysticism and mountains. And and she plays a witch who who bedazzles some young mountaineers. And, you know, it's, it's a fantasy film. Okay. Uh, but still, I mean, she's was the greatest. She was, the, the, she was, there's no other way to describe her than she was a Nazi propagandist who made the two greatest propaganda films at all time, of all time, so much so that they are still studied in film schools, right. um, along with the captive Dr. Calgary. Yeah. But, um, Interesting. And, you know, so he wrote this thing. And so I think it was a very poor choice, positioning-wise, because it was only 15 years since the Germany was defeated. Yeah. And, like, why... You know, why collaborate with this person? I think it was a very bad tone deaf, you know, choice to do that. It was just like Well, Hubbard know, Hubbard like, could Hubbard certainly cannot be accused of showing amazing discretion when it came to his choice, yeah, his life choices. Yeah, you know? No, exactly. It was like when he went to Rhodesia and yeah. and and supported the apartheid government there yes. and proposed opposed a new, you know, uh constitution that would, you know, make uh, integrate the the sort of maintain apartheid and maybe a better way whenever so it's just like what the hell are you doing you know going to rhodesia and being like being you know <laughs> supporting them right and then they kicked him out you know that you know that they deported him oh yeah oh yeah yeah and and then this is just a funny little side note because i have to tell it dan sherman who is a good friend of mine may he rest in peace he won't mind me saying this not now especially but he he did a presentation once about when Hubbard went to Rhodesia, uh -huh. and he tells the whole story. And then he says he was uh, he was um, exiled from Rhodesia. And I afterwards mm -hmm. I said, Hey, Danny, you can't be exiled. You can only be exiled from your own country. When you're when you're thrown out of another country, you're deported. I mean, that was just factually that was just false. He was deported. He was in exile. And Danny looked at me and he said, Exiled sounds better. So. <laughs> Talk about propagandist. Yeah, so I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You yeah, are it sounds actually. Cooler. He, I think, I think he meant it sounds cooler. Yeah, well, of so course I, he I'm... meant that. Plus, of course, if he said deported, that immediately ties it in with the whole immigration problem. And Scientologists tend to be pretty far hard right and yeah, anti-immigration. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons yeah, but... to not go there. Yeah, but Danny you know. was Danny. Dan Sherman's a wordsmith. But he was a good writer. He cared about language, apparently. But I don't want to say anything bad about him. I'm talking about his. Oh, writing. I will. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, I will rag uh, on Danny Sherman's language and Yusef all day long. Oh yeah. You know? oh, no, no. Yeah, but and, not, and yeah. that's a and that's a perfectly good example. Is I think that choice was actually you know you're calling him out on it, 
I think that was absolutely a choice. I was calling him out as a friend to be like, chide him, go, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Saying that he was exiled. He was freaking deported, man. They scooped his ass up and kicked him out of the country. Right. But that's not the story that that empowers Hubbard. Exactly. Because the Rolling Stones song is exiled on Main Street. It's not deported on Main Street. (laughs) (laughs) It just sounds cooler. That's right. That's right. Um, anyway, yeah. so that's the deal with Lenny Rivenstahl. At some point, cool. I'm going to make a short documentary about it because it really is fascinating. The whole story is just fascinating. It is when you dive into all the details and everything. And like I've said it a few times recently, you know, it's it's really interesting to have these very black and white positions in the world. You know, Nazis bad, you know, America good. These are easy positions to hold for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. They really are. Yeah. I'm not I'm not even like, you know, suggesting that there's something good there, but I am suggesting that black and white thinking is not realistic thinking. When you go deep into the details of things, things get gray, things get murky, things get interesting, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's always and this is the world that science lives in and and it's the viewpoint I I try to have rather than go, you know, black and white world, right? Uh, because that's very simplistic and reductionist. So, yeah. so yeah. there's well, interesting details here, you know? Yeah, I think it's, black and white thinking is kind of narcissistic. Cause it, well, it certainly it kind of, reinforces narcissism. Yeah, because it kind of gives you an out for experiencing your own shame. Like if you can just put things in black and white terms, you can escape a lot of your own shame because a lot of the shame exists in the gray areas and you, you need to kind of, pick it up and deal with it but um yeah, yeah. so yeah so that's I'll actually you, here's a, a, that's a, that's actually a really accurate statement that is a really good observation you just made yeah, because it, it has everything yeah. to do with cult recovery because it tends to be the fact that when a person comes when a person's in a cult they're on the side of white then they leave the cult then they pendulum swing over to the black side and i'm just yeah. using these colors as, as as arbitrary references i don't mean good bad here i just mean yeah, yeah, you yeah. go from one extreme point of view people tend to go right over to the other side and it's usually years of work that is required to kind of bring them back into the middle where they can have a bit more realistic perspective yeah. on both ends of it you know right right well, psychiatry with respect to Scientologists is a really good example of that because when you're in Scientology, psychiatry is bad. And so therefore, when you leave, psychiatry must be good. And neither of those two are, are 100% correct. Correct. In psychiatry, they do some terrible things to people. I mean, they're, you know, shocking and drugging and they and, and there's also some very good people. And then it, if, and if you think it's all bad, you're wrong because there are some very good people. If, if you think it's all good, you're wrong. That's so right. it's kind of, you, you need to, I think you're saying you need to really be willing to inspect things, but I'm sorry, Chris, I have to get back to one more thing about Hubbard and this whole deal. Go ahead. That what, The thing is, is that it really got me thinking about his film career in Hollywood mm. because he was, he reflected on it so much in the letter when he, when he expressed his enthusiasm for helping her write, rewrite the script. And he really committed to it. I mean, I've I've seen all of I've read all of his notes to her about plotting, plot how you about plot uh, development and character development, and it's you know it, he he's you know Hubbard wrote millions of words. I don't know how many millions he wrote about everything. Mm-hmm. He wrote about how to how to polish your cat. I mean, like everything, right? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but he never wrote about how to write. Huh. Like, uh, you know, outside they of say, maybe whatever you interpret from the art series, I suppose. No, well, there's nothing specifically in the art series about writing. Well, oh, okay. Now, hang on one second. I have to ask you one other thing then. What about his writings for the Writers of the Future guys? Was that uh, not writing he, on writing? No, that's not him. Oh, I was no, under the didn't. impression that they studied some Hubbard stuff from the from the prop from the from the uh, promo uh, I've read. Maybe they, may, maybe they took some art series stuff about. Oh, okay. So there isn't. Okay, because I was always but, under the impression from no. the pro, from the PR materials that there were some secret Hubbard writings on writing that they were getting to be to no. see. So no, finding out that's bullshit is good news for me because I was always no, like, what's he never, up with that? He never wrote anything about well, uh, okay. He did. And I'm going to tell you what it is. But yeah. no, the writers of the future, they they took a lot of his writings, his essays on communication and, uh, okay. you know, what is art and definitions of art. And, and they packaged that up with some uh, mentors who in the field of science fiction writing, right? Right. And like, you know, Jerry Pornell and that other guy, I can't, some of these guys. Are really Sanderson, well some other guys. Yeah, Brian Yeah, yeah, Sanderson. yeah. They sort of yeah. package them up and, yeah. and, and then they go to town with it. But he never wrote anything like, he never wrote anything that says, this is how you create a plot. This is how you plot a story. Okay. He never wrote anything about, this is how you create characters. This is how you develop uh, how, what is good character separation, which... That's one thing he wasn't particularly good at, in my view, because all of his characters sounded the same. Like, they had the same voice because it was his voice, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, in doing his films, reading the scripts, one of the things I had to deal with was that all the characters, you know, the captain on the ship goes, well, you want I should give him, you know, I think there's something going on here with him. And the chaplain is saying, you want I should give him a session. It sounds like the same person, like mm -hmm. in terms of how it's written. So you just kind of have to just work around that with the actors. But he never really wrote anything about writing. He wrote everything, he wrote about directing, he wrote about camera work, he wrote everything, not about writing, except he wrote a bunch of stuff to Lenny Riefenstahl about writing. Like, that's the only stuff that he wrote. He wrote about how you develop characters and he wrote about how you how what makes a good plot and what makes a good story and and if you just relate that to his success as in you know writing dom, dime novels back in the pulp days and writing all that science fiction stuff you know, he was a craftsman he know what he knew what he was doing and so reading that stuff certainly not going to help your is it may sharpen some of your tools i mean it's it's not the end all you know i read a lot of science fiction and i was not a big fan of science fiction i think if you're 13 years old it probably is great but when i was 13 i was reading isaac asimov and guys yeah. like that and yeah they me were too. Just, they were blow you know you did we talked about we both read the foundation when we were oh teenagers. yeah oh yeah and it's just amazing and blew my and, mind asimov bradbury heinlein yeah. these were heinlein, the guys yeah. i was consuming as a teenager yeah it was great i mean yeah. i was uh, i was um more than a little upset at uh, the the Apple's uh, interpretation of the foundation. Yes, I thought it was. Yes, I, I thought, thought it was. I thought horrid. it was unrecognizable. Me too. From the book. Yeah, yeah me too. Well, well you were getting you, up the Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I just cut you off. What were you going to say? Well, so he he did write a considerable amount of stuff for her. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe twenty pages of, of handwritten notes on like why he did what he did in the script. And I found it really fascinating. How interesting. Um, but the thing is, is that his filmmaking career was like, 
the the party line is that he made the most successful serial of all times, which is this secret of Treasure Island, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you unpack that, like, how would you measure what is the most successful serial of all time when people were going to the movies to see something like Gone with the Wind, right? Mm -hmm. And then they were seeing that was the feature, as they called it, which is why we call movies features. And then they'd have a B-movie, which was the second-tier film, which is why we call films B-movies. And then they would have a cartoon. And then before that, they'd have a serial. So, And nobody went to see the serials. They were usually, most of them were buying popcorn. And nobody remembers them, uh, except maybe Buck Rogers. And they're trying to pump him up. And mostly what Hollywood did when I researched this, like the Columbia Pictures one, is they bought the rights to his stories because they were short little, you know, dime novels and they made great serials. And then on a few of them, like Secret Treasure Island, they had four script writers and he was one of them. And I've never seen a film that if there's more than two script writers, you just know it's a crappy film. <laughs> like it, if, it, if it took, usually that means it was rewritten four times and then by Writers Guild rules, they have to keep the person on. Right. Because he wrote enough of it that he still gets credit. So it was not, it was just like whatever. But you had these people back then, like real towering literary figures like Mankiewicz, like Dorothy Parker, like mm -hmm. I, I, they, I can't, the rest of them can't come, don't come to mind right now. And, and, and Raymond Chandler, who is one of my all time favorites. And who also was a dime started out in pulp in dime novels, Raymond Chatterton. But I mean, he wrote. I'm trying to think of the film that he wrote that was nominated for an Oscar. But Maltese Falcon. He wrote, huh? Was it Maltese Falcon? No, 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 no. Okay. No, he. But he wrote Strangers in a Train for Hitchcock. Uh, I think he wrote Dial M for Big Murder. Sleep? I'm not sure. Huh? Big Sleep. Well, that was his novel, but I don't know that he wrote, he may have written the script for it, but he was this other guy who started out in, in dime novels like Hubbard, but he ascended to becoming one of the most well-respected novelists of, you know, the 20th century, right? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, because Long Goodbye, Farewell, My Lovely, The Lady in the Lake. You, you don't need to sleep. look there. I know them all by heart. No, I I'm just telling the audience. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. Who we're talking about here? I'm just, I'm so, just uh, and he became a uh, Hollywood writer. Yeah. So the thing was is that in those days, you know, Hollywood has also always had a scarcity of writers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even today. I mean, that's why they make films out of comic books for crying out loud. <laughs> if there were enough good writers in Hollywood, there would be no Marvel Universe because it's just like, <laughs> they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't need it. Uh -huh. But anyway, anyway, so. Um, there was this thing that happened where, like, there's a quote I found online where Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, we all know who he is because he did that Stephen Fincher film. Mank was about him. He wrote Citizen Kane, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he had written to his fellow writers. He said, you know, you should come to Hollywood because it's really easy money and your competition, they're a bunch of idiots. So there was this kind of rush for all these great literary giants. Uh, S.J. Perlman came and he wrote for the Marx Brothers. I mean, these were like major people, um, novelists. And when Mankiewicz talked about, well, your competition, a bunch of idiots, he wasn't specifically. I mean, the idiots he was talking about were the guys like Hubbard who were writing like 
like you know writing serials right like kind of like hacks you know they could just go in and they they weren't going to make dial in for murder strangers on a train double indemnity you know they weren't going to be writing any of that kind of stuff right um and i think that was part of hubbard's frustration going back to the letter when he was calling out ed mole at universal he needs to be taught a lesson because i think he was really jealous of that whole literary crowd because he, you know, some of them, like Chandler, had been, you know, I don't, the for, the term Pulp Fiction never came into the English vernacular until Tarantino's film. Nobody used that term. Mm. Um, like, back in those days, they were called pulps, and they were called dime novels, right? Right, right. They weren't called Pulp Fiction, right? That was a okay. new academic, that was a very clever term that, Tarantino did, but then all of a sudden, as soon as he did that, ASI was like, "Oh, Ron Hubbard, you know, master of the of pulp fiction, you know, became like mm -hmm. this thing, right?" And it was completely not what they called it. it. It so there were guys like, especially Chandler, who came out of dime novels and then became novelists and then became Oscar nominated or Oscar winning screenwriters, and you know, Hubbard was just like he he had his ten minutes, his ten weeks of fame whatever it, when he spent 10 weeks in Hollywood I I think because it was so short-lived I saw it on th there's a history of L. Ron Hubbard that's put out by the church and it's a chronology you know that one is, it goes through everything is it my it philosophy year year, or is it just his regular bio no it's not even a bio it's like a Wikipedia type of it's it's like a platform that's just that's a timeline oh sure I yeah, yeah I forget yeah. what it's called but it, it's it's officially endorsed property of Elwood Hubbard Library. Mm -hmm. And it goes through the piece part of his life where he's in Hollywood. And it's, you know, the 10 weeks he spent in Hollywood. It's really was nothing. But right. Well, I and think so as, then, I, as I mentioned in the before we started talking, even as a Scientologist and Sea Org member, I had a hard time swallowing that Hubbard was this great screenwriter in Hollywood because exactly that. It always came off like well, he did that one thing, and then he was gone, and it was like, I don't really see I mean, greatness the, here, you know? The, yeah, I mean, there was a few others. He contributed to some serials, and he was a writer on some of them, but... That's I mean, like, I mean, from how you're describing it, that's basically like saying he wrote some movie trailers. I mean, it's really not no, anything. Movie trailers know? are harder to write than serials. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, it's just, it's just like, Nobody remembers them. It's like no, I get it. I totally get it. It's something they play because they want to get people in their seats, get them out of the concession stand, and tell them the movie's going to start. You need to go to the bathroom now. Right. They'll play the serial. It's just like there was no TV back then. People went to the movies for the whole day. I mean, they got right. there at noon. They left at four. They they you know and they right, right. You know, and everything led up to the feature, and that was the the metric of success was the box office of the feature. So when you say the most successful serial, that is just somebody pulled that out of their ass. That is just completely ridiculous. And if you actually told the true story of it, it's probably interesting enough that people would go, huh, that's interesting that he spent a little time and they bought some of his stories. Well, yeah, but, you know, but that's the, that violates all the rules of, of I, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but that violates all the rules of hagiography. Right. Right, the, the the biography of a religious figure is told by the religion, and right, and right. and and that has to be that it has to be that Hubbard, 
you know, envisioned his life purpose at three years old when he was, you know, fell right, into that bucket right. of red paint, right? And he had to tame Broncos right. when he was five. And he had to graduate at the top of his class. And he had to be a war hero. And he had to be the hero of Hollywood. Like all of these things are checkboxes that have to exist in order for Scientology to justify its existence. And that's, exactly. you know, and that's yeah, where this exactly. stuff comes from is, is, is yeah. really that, you know? Yeah, like Joseph Smith and the Golden... Exactly, and the golden tablets and all the plates and all that. Okay, so one last little anecdote about that is kind of interesting. So I was at SMP in the run-up to the opening. I was involved in it and did a lot of their foundational work on their mission statement. And uh, I, I did a you know two-minute, quote-unquote, sizzle reel, which presented to the industry what the studio was going to be about as a teaser, right? So I did all this stuff. I was very involved in it. And so... That is that studio. I was never really aware of it. I mean, where KCT was, but I didn't. I never really knew there was an old film studio there, mm. which it actually dates back to the teens. It's really a fascinating history. You could read about it. Um, I can't remember the first name of the hist of the of the studio. It's old brick, like industrial age brick, mm -hmm. and then a couple of sound stages got added on, and then in the seventies, KCET, the public television station, they built the administration buildings, and then of course Scientology spent tens and tens of millions of dollars um, restoring it to really a spectacular level because that's one thing they just do so well uh, because Miscavige believes that the quality of the buildings will command so much respect for Scientology that it will help to counter a lot of the other stuff. Like this, nobody would do that to a building and, and who was a, an evil cult. You people are just full of shit. Look at our building. So, but the original building, um, the studio, the entrance of the studio is on Sunset Boulevard. So behind the studio is a street called sunset place right mm -hmm. and the original studio the address was sunset place right and there's a really lovely old antique door that opens into the studio which of course is locked down because it's like you'd never go in that way you have to go through the guard gate on sunset boulevard but just behind that door is the office they built for hubbard they built this lovely little office and a lovely little 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 conference room and then it's also a kind of museum with lots of displays of his pulps and you know the, obviously the columbia uh, pictures serials and then the parts of the studio they have are just lined there's one row there's one like an al uh, uh, an interior like a walking space where on on one side there's an old brick building and it's just these huge blow-ups of the of the serial posters and pulps that he worked on so it's really adorned with a lot of stuff from you know the golden age of hubbard's quote-unquote career in hollywood but in his office is the most curious thing. There is a framed letter from a producer at Monogram Studios inviting him to come to that address that the studio now owns. And that document was found just in time to be included in the opening of the studio. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is like Joseph Smith and the fake documents. And like, I searched so hard trying to prove that that, that there was ever any connection between L. Ron Hubbard and Monogram Studios. You know, you hear about Columbia and there was some work with some other organizations, but Monogram, it's like, there's nothing like, like, you know, 
whatever. It's just. It wouldn't be the first time by any stretch that the Church of Scientology's PR departments have manufactured a piece of history in order to support L. Ron Hubbard. It just wouldn't be. You know, it it just wouldn't be. Yeah, this just blew my mind because yeah. I, I was there when they were finishing the whole place off. We were working out of there before it opened, mostly on hate sites, uh, which is a whole another story. Uh, you worked on so, the hate sites. Well, yes. Yeah, I did a little bit. I mean, I, 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 I think it's better for the YouTube audience, especially the really bloodthirsty ones, to sort of throw yourself down and say, I did it and I'm so sorry and I'm such a bad person. And so when you say, well, I sort of worked on it, they're like, he's, he, that guy's full of shit. So, um, yeah, I did some work on that. I mean, I'll tell you exactly what I did. Yeah. The only one that I really had much to do with was the, the, the video response to 2020, to ABC 2020, when they got the exclusive to feature Ron Miscavige's book two weeks before the release of the book. Okay. That one I worked on because I did interviews on it. You've probably seen them. You grabbed a picture of me from whatever. Yeah. One of the reasons why I'm being active on YouTube is I want them to find this when they search before they find that. Okay. And one of the ways you do that is just called reputation management, and uh, which is something I learned all about uh, uh, the uh, on the dime of the Church of Science. That's right. I'll about, bet you did. Learned, I learned all about SEO and reputation management. So I'm actually engaging in a little bit of reputation management to push all that crap down. Uh, like the Ron Miscavige stuff. And then when I was, before SP opened, when we were doing the hate sites there, we had a guy who was a very good writer uh, who had worked for Hollywood Reporter. Chris, you know that the Hollywood Reporter has never been a friend of the Church of Scientology, mm-hmm. right? They, they've had a very toxic relationship. And yet there was a guy that was booted out of there for whatever, some personal lifestyle, bad decisions. Very good writer, veteran Hollywood Reporter writer. So the uh, SAP picked him up and had him. He was help, helping us write hate sites, right? Because he was really good. And this guy was, he didn't give a, he had so, he did not have scruples. He was like, you, you want me to do what? Oh, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. That guy's what? He's a, he's a whatever, crazy shit. They, and they love, for a sex negative organization, they like impugning people's sexuality. Oh, like, Miscavige you know, particularly seems to have set the tone on that one. Yeah, particularly, yeah. especially for a guy who, you know, um, you know, abandoned his wife, uh, you know, banished his wife to a mountain compound and then took up with his assistant. Yeah. A- after after ordering her to divorce her ex-husband who was dying of multiple sclerosis. sclerosis that's right. I yeah, actually so I actually like, knew him at the end of his life because he was yeah, relegated so I, yeah, to he was in the PAC. RPF. He was on the RPF. Yeah, he, yeah, fact. and he had multiple sclerosis. Great guy. Yeah, I, and I he died cool. there uh, <laughs> with MS. That was how much Miscavige hated that guy. Yeah, and he was you know. uh, doing his wife while that was all going on. So, yeah. we're, you know, that whole story, the hashtag Shelley is like one little piece of it. Um, there's so much more to it. It's just a, 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 a it's a lurid tabloid story. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. You know, it, like it doesn't even need to be written as a lurid tabloid story it just pops out of the egg that way so um but it's starting to get a little more coverage and maybe that will help yeah for some people to be able to, to recover from all of that oh boy that was yeah so i only knew about that because i was at pack one day doing something and i walked out as i was walking out 
of the complex, you know, the beautifully painted, painted blue building, I ran into him being pushed in a wheelchair. And I knew him because he had replaced Jackson as the security chief at Gold right. after Jackson left. And he'd also been an actor because he's a good looking guy. And he had that sort of a real husky Euro, you know, German accent, which is, and uh, I, he acted in a couple of films because he was like suitable for doing that back when we were using staff for acting. But right. that's a real, that's a I remember him in, um, in the, how the e-meter works film, how the e-meter works. He was the guy. Oh, yeah. so yeah. He was the guy with the cane. Uve Stukenbrock was, huh? yeah. huh? was his real name. Yeah. Yeah. Uwe yeah. Stukenbrock, that's right. Yeah. Um, he was a good guy. And yeah, it was a very good guy. And I made that film again, obviously without him, but right without anybody who had any connection to Scientology whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that that alone would start cluing them in on something. You know, the fact they have to keep remaking films because their their Scientology leads keep blowing and becoming suppressive. But what was the commentary that. on that particular thing at Gold? I've always been curious. What What did people say about that? <laughs> oh, that's such a funny question. I mean, it's a great question, but it's, it makes me laugh because now I'm sort of thinking at the kind of like the kind of uh, the sort of panic that would set in like, you know, because you have all of the stuff you need to get done. Right. Mm -hmm. We were very serious about making films. I know. I think you wanted to ask me, I think, about what it was like working with the crews there. We oh, we're going to get that. to that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some, there, there are some very talented people there. Um, but from a, from a managerial standpoint where you have certain things to get done and then added to that list is an entire film because somebody went, you know, went, somebody puked their guts up. Um, mm -hmm. that, that, there's a certain panic that would set in. But, you know, so then basically what would happen is you'd have to sit down and do a, a, a thorough assessment of the film. It's just something we could see the CGI, the guy out of it. Is Could we reshoot scenes that match to get him out of there? Right. Um, that's so there or, or do we just want to reshoot it because it should be refreshed anyway? Right. You know what I'm saying? Because, or then there was the whole change of meter, like when it's, when, when you know it, it well, everything that had the original Mark V, well, those films were shitty and needed to be reshot because they were horrible, and they got reshot with a Mark VI and then with a Quantum, and then when the Mark VIII came out, that was a whole fiasco, because it was like you know you're gonna have to start because you know you're, the films that have e meters in them, you don't want the 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 the, right. the pure the old film. one right yeah because then a guy just spent ten grand buying two Mark VIII's and he looked at the film and he's like well, wait a minute they're using a quantum in the film. How come I had to buy a Mark 8? Obviously, the quantum is good enough because they're featuring the film. So that was its own kind of fiasco. Unfortunately, Miscavige had made a very bad decision. If you're watching, uh, you should listen to this because you might learn something. Um, he thought, well, we'll keep in the already existing films, we'll keep, this is such inside baseball, Chris, like this is just like, right from the belly of the beast. I don't know if anybody's going to be interested because the... No, tell me. The, the, uh, but the, uh, the there were a bunch of films that had been shot with an older meter, like, you know, Quantum, which mm -hmm. is valid. Uh, and then, the so it was like, we're going to keep all of those. And when we shoot new films or shoot films over, we'll use the Quantum, right? Not every film has an E-meter in it, right. but a, a lot of them do. Uh, so, and then when it came to doing films that the quantum, I'm sorry, the Mark 8 would be featured in, 
and your listeners they understand the these different mod meter models that they okay good mm -hmm. so when it came time to feature the mark a it was like it wasn't ready for release yet but it was time for us to do the film oh my god what do you do so we we shoot all of those scenes twice with both meters wow so wow. it was a lot of extra work and and i i was and i like my idea that and I told Miscavige and I was concerned I might get in trouble for even saying it, but I, I was like, that's a mistake because about two weeks after the Mark eight comes out, everything else is going to look old. Mm -hmm. So why are you shooting it in two versions? You know, why are you keeping the original meter, the older meter in the original, in the films that are already done? It all has to be changed because just it's marketing wise, people are going to look at it and go, I don't need to buy your new meter. The, the meter I have is in the tech film. Right. So that became, that became kind of a thing, but that, you know, that's, right. that's, right, that's, right. those are just nuisance things compared to the challenge of actually making the film. Cause no, we I'm really, sure. yeah, we put a lot of, I mean, that's a, that gold is a hundred percent legitimate filmmaking, uh, activity it's not it, it you know it, it i could take that crew if they ever wanted to the crew that i trained up and i did a second one too like you know i had a person not long before i left somebody from hco say to me that one thing that i was really good at was building a team so i was like oh great so that's one thing that kept me out of trouble right and um i i could take i you know for equivalent budget type stuff, they could shoot anything. They're really good. The top technical people, camera, lighting, sound, makeup, very good people, very good. Trained trained under uh, people from Hollywood uh, and to some degree people from sets. So there's there's a lot of talent up there. It's just like right, they should right. get the fuck out while they can, they're still young enough. Yeah, while they job. still can get another job. Let me ask you about something that I have wondered about since the day it happened. And sure. you are one of the only people who would be able to answer this question. Okay. Um, which was from the day that I saw, and, and again, this is super minutia. Maybe this will make it in the final episode. Maybe it won't. I'm not sure yet. But I have a question mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. Dan Kuhn was the actor and Scientology Sea Org member who has since left Scientology completely. But You're he the was the one who was directed by L. Ron Hubbard personally in the TRs film, in that old, old TRs film. Yeah. And when he, and that was L. Ron Hubbard standing behind the camera directing a dude, this is what TRs are supposed to look like. And to me, as a Scientologist and Sea Org member, when my head was in that game, that was sacred lore. That was as sacred on film as you could get because right, that was because the L. Ron Hubbard interpretation of what yeah. TRs were supposed to look like. And yeah. films were described in Scientology as not just entertaining things. They were visual, audio-visual HCO bulletins. Mm -hmm. So this was the standard to follow as set by L. Ron Hubbard. And the reason right. I keep saying that is because Hubbard was dead after Dan Kuhn took off. And here was this problem of we already knew they were remaking shots or remaking films that SPs were in to get rid of them. But here was the Hubbard standard on TRs. Right. And so my question is, how did that conversation go? Was there a conversation or was it just, oh, no, obviously we're redoing this? 
Okay, well, it goes like this. Um, I'm going to try to make this interesting for your audience because this is such inside baseball. Sure. But it it is actually a really interesting story. And it, you have to go back to 1963, fade in, Shane Hill, L. Ron Hubbard is running. I think we talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, he's running world Scientology worldwide, and he, he's getting interested in all this audio video stuff. Like he's starting to put closed circuit TVs in a, a cameras in a room and then yep. a TV in another room. Yep. And he start, you know, you've seen the video of stuff of that. Well, this was he's the very these, first video monitoring of auditing sessions is what you're yeah, describing. Which, yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's presenting that as though it's some technological breakthrough. And it was just like, it was just not even up to the standard of high school audio visual of the era. Right. I'm serious. It was just like whatever. Uh, but he 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 filmed he shot this filmed lecture uh, in 1963 called "An Afternoon at St. Hill." He gave a tour of St. Hill. Yep. And and in part of that lecture, he talked about he said that Scientology will only go so far as it's correctly taught. Right. This is a big theme in Scientology, mm-hmm. and it can only be correctly taught taught if you see it done and you can only see it done with films because obviously he wasn't going to be able to train people you know take the time to train everybody so back then in 1963 he basically put a stake in the ground and said we're not going to make it unless we make films and he became very focused on that it wasn't until 1978 when he was at la quinta that he actually started writing the scripts and so forth and what motivated him to write those scripts was they were at La Quinta and he was interested in making films and he wanted to see what is the state of auditing currently. So at, let's say the Los Angeles organization, right? LA work, right? So what he did was he, he had all of the auditors videotaped and he called those videotapes up to, to La Quinta. And according to the material that I've read and the tapes of him that I've listened to, he was aghast. He was just like, oh my God. God, this is Scientology. Like it was so bad, and and so and Dan Kuhn was one of those auditors, right? Mm. And so uh, a bunch of them were invited up to to W to La Quinta, right? And a lot of them joined. Some of them joined the Sea Org and got involved in filmmaking, which was the focus of La Quinta. You know, Mike Rinder was there. He didn't do films. He was being a messenger. Like Janice Grady, she was being a messenger. David Miscavige was a cameraman, you know, and other people that I knew later, but whatever. So that's, uh, but I still, I'm getting to your question. I'm just, this is like the groundwork of like, what happened? What was the conversation? So then that film becomes really sacred, as you described. It is the only record of TRs drilled by L. Ron Hubbard, right? right? And so I made all of the technical training films come completed them some of them more than once we never touched the professional tr scores and people would say i understand you directed the tech films and i would say yes all of them but the pro tr scores because we will never do it i never wanted anybody to think that i was somehow that 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 film was anything other than sacred like i'm not going to do it Mm -hmm. i'm not going to do it we're never going to do it right because this is basically was the party line. It's what we all thought. And then over the years, more and more people went belly up who were in the film. The character that Dan Coon played, you know, his leave. I mean, he's like, that was like major, right? I mean. Um, like everybody in the world 
modeled how they did TRs in Scientology watching Dan Kuhn. Yeah, which was really unfortunate because it was nothing against Dan. But first, let me just explain something to you that I learn in a very profound way. And that is there's a difference between doing TRs and between auditing an individual on camera and doing it in real life. These are two different things. Mm. Just because you're sitting there doing TRs on a perfect, you need to be able to act them, not do them. Ah. That's my point. Got okay. It. Got it. It's two different things. Uh, Dan Kuhn was completely, but not just him, they were able to act the part of a person doing TRs. Right. It, even a better point is uh, the actress, brilliant actress, Katie Mitchell, who played the angel in um, the, the oh, professional, professional TRs. TRs. Yeah. yeah she, she couldn't audit a person to save her life, but she created, she acted the part and performed every little detail of an auditor that right. people could model themselves after her. So it takes acting skill, not the the TR skill. You get what I'm saying? I do. I do. They're, yeah, so they're the, acting how, on how, a on a film set. Understood. Yeah, it's Understood. Your, your, yeah, it's a portrayal of TRs. It's not TRs. It has to be. You know the the. Um, you know, there's an old saying that the camera never lies, right? Mm -hmm. We all hear that it's absolutely the most false statement ever. The camera only lies. Okay, it does nothing but lie. Like great photographers who can capture something that connects with truth, that's a whole different subject. But there's still an alter an alteration of reality. But the artist is harnessing that alteration in a way that brings you something more truthful. I don't want to get all crazy philosophical about this, but it really is an acting job by Katie. So I would always, you know, and I told Miss Cavish, like, I'm, we don't care. Like, okay, she had all this, she got drilled and drilled on confessional procedure and stuff. And I'm sure that helped her. But still the standard, like they were trying to apply the standard to her. Like, could she actually audit somebody? And then eventually they just gave up on that because we didn't do that anymore. We made sure the person was really thoroughly versed and familiar with the procedure they were doing. And then they would perform it. They they wouldn't actually do it. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. Because, so, yeah, she could never. You weren't, uh, you weren't shooting a documentary. Yeah, exactly. And it would probably not look good anyway if you, if, right. So it wouldn't be presented as a film. So, no, it um, would look, it would absolutely, I see the difference in what you're in. Yeah. When I put it that way, I go, okay, I get it. Because documentaries, very different tone and uh, attitude from how the technical training films were approached, where it was yeah, perfect I mean, camera were, angles, perfect sound, yeah. perfect lighting, you yeah. know, everything was perfect. Yeah, and yeah, and you're shooting things over and over again, and you know you expect right. you to match them, and it's so, right. you know, it happens in in. That's <laughs> why so I became really fond of cooking because I needed to do something that happened in real time. You know, if, if there's an urgency about it, you can't let it go, and when you're done, you can give it to people, and they have a pleasurable experience, and you're done. With a film, you know, you just spend so long laboring over little things before you can finally serve it up to somebody and you know they get to enjoy it it happens so far out of real time that it actually can be painful anybody who makes films needs to balance it off with a real time that's my theory like you need to do something that's real time cooking is a great example of something that sure 
you know, happens in real time and then results in a pleasurable experience. So right. I, I always enjoy doing that. So anyway, so, but I still haven't gotten to the conversation. So this film is becoming more and more radioactive as more and more people are uh, emerging as suppressive people. And, and so one day, uh, Miscavige comes to me and he says, look, that was not the film that L. Ron Hubbard wanted. Everybody kind of hates that film. They're just nobody talks about it. Like everybody, like he, he just finally confronted it. And he said, everybody thinks the film's just stupid. And he said, as for the TRs, here, listen to this. And he gave me a tape. One of the big problems was Dan Kuhn, his, his eyes were red in that entire film. Beat red, and so if you have red eyes while you're doing tears, it's 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 you you know that it's really bad. You're uh, you sh you're not comfortable, and you're supposed to be comfortable. So he took him into a trailer, and of course everything he did was recorded. You know back then, a, a messenger had a microphone, a, a little recorder in his face, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about Elron Hubbard now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hubbard, yeah he, the Hubbard. messengers followed him around. Yeah. They recorded everything. Yeah. And especially when he was filming up there. I mean, I listened to scores of hours of him directing. Uh, he's He recorded hours and hours of him directing the Proteus film. I listened to that before I did the film. It's, wow. So there's a lot of stuff like that that they have uh, stored away. So really interesting stuff. A lot of it's really batshit crazy. But um, so he had Dan, uh, he had Dan in, in, in the trailer and you heard him coaching him and it was painful. <laughs> really it was yeah because he's like no man he's like just acknowledge me no give me the line he said here i'll do it he did line readings i'll do it like uh, off with her head that was the one they did uh -huh. and and he and so he said dan he said hey, give me the line they, you know it's for your your audience they're reading out of they're pulling commands out of uh alice in wonderland for the other person to respond to uh, so they're just, they want it to be nonsense lines. They don't want them to have any significance to a person's life. So the line is off with her head. And he says, give me the line. And Dan Coon says, off with her head. And, and Hubbard says, my God. And it was actually this amazing acknowledgement. Like he just really let him have it. And, uh, uh, but he never pulled it off. I mean, he just, it was a very stiff performance. So um, I, I'm like, I get it. And then I read through all the notes and, while everybody was thinking that this film is sacred, Hubbard's like, if he's basically, fuck it. I got to get something out there because the TRs in LA are so horrible. Just wow. it'll do for now. Literally, it was like a stopgap. Like it was just. <laughs> How funny. How funny. I never yeah. did. I got out before the revised version of that film oh, came I'm out. Oh, I'm so sorry you didn't. So I see never it. saw your version of that film. Uh, so I, oh. I don't know what, what they're using now. I just watched that original film, I, and I'm not exaggerating. I probably saw that entire film 50 times uh, while I was in Scientology. Right. You know? I couldn't possibly have a misunderstood. I'm oh. an English major. Oh, I had that film memorized. Absolutely. It was yeah, crazy. You and me both. Oh, absolutely uh, nuts. Well, okay. So, um, so that was the conversation that led to the remaking of the protest. Yeah, so... Because the film was so sacred, it was very challenging to, to redo. Like we, you had to, you had to be very, very thoughtful in your approach to doing it. Because, for instance, those horrible costumes that look like some bad 
cross between a Nehru jacket and a Star Trek uniform. Yes. That the staff wore. Yes. And they were in that blue color that was similar to the complex, right? Yeah. Um, original complex color. So you had to be very thoughtful about that. And there was the the environment. It was shot in the in the date packing plant at La Quinta, right? So there were vertical poles in the room. Yes. Because uh, it was not a studio, and so they would try to disguise them, integrate them into the space. In that particular film, they wrapped them with a shiny foil, yeah. right? <laughs> so, and then they had outside the window, they had uh, a backdrop that looked like a pastoral field that, like, some six-year-olds had painted. Yep. For a school project, it was just really bad. And then the students, they wore these really brightly colored costumes. They wore satin tops, blousy satin tops and and slacks and then they had sashes around their waist and it was like like pirates and it was like it was supposed to be timeless like hubbard had written this uh cine ed called you know up, there's i think it was called timeless just timelessness something he said these films are supposed to take place in the year zilch right right which is totally a, a legitimate thing to want to make the film timeless and I had always tried to explain that the only thing that's really timeless, it's really timeless, is like bad taste, okay? Because it's always going to be bad, like timelessly, right? But if you look at it, like Citizen Kane, there's some of the costumes in the film you could wear today and you mm -hmm. would look very chic. Mm -hmm. Or even The Godfather, which is now 50 years old, you could look, there's costumes in there, suits and men and women that were very chic right maybe a slight little update and so but he thought they'd have to just do something that nobody had ever seen so by the time you're done reducing everything out that nobody had ever seen all you're left with is what nobody ever wanted to see exactly <laughs> you know oh they were i mean we would we would no, laugh no, no, no. we would even as scientologists as hardcore believers we thought the the let's just say the production values of those tech films yeah. were were epically just legendarily bad and and as a, at the public level you know i was introduced to these as a teenager and i was like okay i just kind of rolled with it but i and as i got older and i learned that it was actually kind of okay to laugh at them like everybody wasn't gonna like rip your face yeah, off over yeah. that it kind of became this acceptable joke sort of thing but um right. yeah you know yeah oh yeah yeah i'm sure I mean, no, you weren't necessarily joking at any of the information in it. No, you, it wasn't. That was the exact point yeah, was we could laugh was at the, the style, yeah, not, yeah. The, not the tech, right? And yeah, differentiate yeah. those. So I tried to update it, make it look like a class five org and do it in an old industrial brick building, like a, like a, in a gentrified part of a inner city, right? Like, right. A, and I, we, I shot a bunch of tests. I actually think I shot about a week of the film and then we looked at it and we went, ah, oh, man, it's not right. We have to figure out a way to keep keep what was good. Like, how do we keep the crap but make it look good? So I hired, uh, what is her name? I think she's won more Academy Awards than any other costumer in Hollywood. I think she's won 11 Academy Awards. Wow. You, want, you hired an Oscar-winning costume designer? Oh, I hired a number of Oscar-winning people. Really? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, she. Wow. I always wondered if she did it because she did Valkyrie with Tom Cruise, ah. and she did his costume in it. Like, uh, remember the beautiful German costume? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, God, I can't think of her name. Uh, and I had an, I hired her 
to do the staff to figure out how do we make these blue Nehru jackets look good. She totally got it. She's like, wow, yeah, I get what you want to do. Um, Colleen Atwood is her name. You can look her up. Okay. Sure. She She's designed every costume for, for Johnny Depp for every film he's ever been in. Oh. Like he, Johnny Depp won't make a film without Colleen Atwood. Mm. Uh, anyway, you can look her up. She's got some impressive credits. So she's really a terrific person. She helped me with it. She went to the fabric supplier and like went through going, not this one, not this one, not this one, this one, you know, while she was on a way to the airport to fly to Rome to do a film with Johnny Depp. And I always wondered if because she knew Tom from Valkyrie, if maybe she was kind of like thinking like, yeah, this is like his thing. And, you know, like maybe there is some relationship there that maybe that had some influence on it to do. I mean, she never came to gold. I met with her at CC a number of times and we exchanged ideas and drawings and stuff. And then I heard somebody, so she did a really good job. I mean, the costumes, she turned those blue things into something really cool looking. And we, the fabric we used on those, I mean, we camera tested the color, the texture for weeks. And they were uh, sewn by an incredibly talented, uh, he's a Korean guy, I think, which maybe he's from uh, Taiwan. I don't know, Asian uh, tailor who is the number one uniform guy in Hollywood. I mean, he did Tom Cruise's uniform for Valkyrie, which has nothing to do with Tom being a Scientologist. That's just completely random, right? Sure, sure. Uh, so it's just, everything's just state of the art. Interesting. And then, and then we took all the colors. Like I, I took the colors. I said, well, there's there was the silver foil and there was the pastoral background and there was the bright colors and then just reinterpreted all of that. Wow. Because right? Howard, he did a thing, a technique called color depth, where he tried to arrange the colors that the students were wearing to make the set look better. And it's in theory, it's a thing you can do. It's a part of color theory where you create depth by the placement of colors, right? Mm -hmm. And some colors are recede, some colors come forward, et cetera. So, um, that's I did the same that's thing. so funny because that that smacks to me of trying to bring particle physics into a, a, a kindergarten classroom with the with the uh, the guess, level I mean, of maybe, lighting I mean, and makeup and control he had on those old sets. It's like, really, you think color is going to solve this? <laughs> I mean, I'm well, just, I mean, I'm just yeah, saying, really, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I had studied color theory when I was in studying design, studying painting, and there, there's a guy named Johannes Itten who's kind of the modern father of color theory. He's the one, you know, that, that color thing where people have four seasons. That, that, oh, sure. You know, yeah, that color thing, me like beautiful, winter, that whole thing, yeah. That all comes out of Joseph Itten's theoretical work. Right. And he was a teacher at the Bauhaus, and he was really a great guy. And Hubbard had, because he studied a lot of stuff, he'd captured a little bit of Itten's work on color depth, though he never knew where it came from, because uh, he just didn't know, because that those theories traveled pretty far into other people's work, but... Because of my education, we had we were right back to studying Itten's original work out of you know a book that costs then like seven hundred dollars because all of the plates were printed on a twelve color press in Switzerland and hand pasted into the book, and so no literally so you could get accurate color oh. while you were studying about his analysis of color and Got learning about it. and okay. so Hubbard had picked up on one little small part of that and he he attempted to harness it to make the set look better, which is kind of an awkward thing to do because people move around. It works really great when you're painting a set, but 
when you have actors that you have to shoot from different angles. Like you never know what's going to be in front of what. But I kind of just followed that same pattern. And I hired a wonderful costume designer who did all of the students' costumes. You know, I'm going to send you some, I think I, I may have some pictures from the. I would love it. if you had any stills. I'd love to see them because I have no idea film, what this I, I looks may like. Have a, yeah, it, it really and it would be interesting. Good. It would be interesting. Yeah. So then I ended up doing them all, but they'll do them all again anyway. Not because of me, because my name is not on them. So I, right. I don't think they'll do them because I spoke out. But no, no, of course not. How interesting. Okay, now another topic that you had suggested we discuss, which I am very keen to get into, is. Um, the industry of death museum and Scientology and the subject of psychiatry. You have done, um, because you put that museum design together and sort of were the you know director, production designer of that whole thing, which I'm fascinated by because I had no idea that that would have been, you know, parsed out to somebody like you directing tech films and then you're designing that museum. But it's par for the course of the Hey You org board Miscavige kind of runs and insiders well, will yeah. know what I'm talking about with that. Yeah. Um, what what can you tell me about the, about the creation of this whole thing and your research into it? Yeah. Maybe we start from there. Yeah, cool. Well, take the Hey You org board thing out of it because I'd done a bunch of other things before I got there. So I was already uh, you know, it's a, a kind of a renaissance person in terms that I've done design projects and I've done this, a bunch of different things. Uh, did you so, did you think that was a criticism of you? No, no, no. I was a criticism, not a criticism of me, not at all. Uh, yeah, because I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, I, no, no, no. I, I just mean the way Miscavige just points to people and says, yeah, you do this, no, you guess, do this. Actually, you're kind of right because, because... That's how you org board. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I take that back because... The project was Mike Rinder's project because I worked with Mike on a bunch of stuff mm. and he had a writer and a director on it. He was getting no support whatsoever. I was just like, I didn't want to, you know, it's like, I thought that thing was needed. I, I thought the shit was going to hit the fan on it, but I tried to just kind of stay away from it, but that never worked. Uh, it never works. The, the shit there sprays so far. You're just going to get hit. Uh, especially if you're somebody who can do something. So yeah, Mike, you know, he, he, I, I was asked to go look at the project. Mike had been sent to the hole. I didn't even know about the hole. Mm -hmm. And um, because that's like perfect Miscavige uh, um, management style, give somebody an impossible project, make sure you don't give them enough support to do it and then incarcerate them in their own office. That's just, you know, that's the way to get something done. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, uh, I was asked to take it over. I went down and looked at it. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's a disaster. The only way to do this is to tear it apart. So in that sense, I stopped what I was doing and got sent on that. So that was like, hey, you work for it because it was somewhere else and then got shoved over onto me, which ultimately I didn't mind, except the schedule on it was so horrific that I, I developed like a sleep disorders and, and oh. I just had nightmares and because I was dealing with this. You know, just to go on record as saying I was not a fan of psychiatry before I was ever a Scientologist, and I'm still not. I think it's a field that needs a lot of, a lot of reform. I'm, I'm not talking about therapists. They, you couldn't have two separate uh, occupations then: psychiatry and therapy. They're completely different. Um, you know, you mm -hmm. one one you, there. You've got hitch, hit, you've got witch doctors versus healers. Take your pick. Okay, so. Fair enough. I think I'll go with I'll go with the healer. Yeah. Um, so anyway, how did I get off the? So you can't really talk about the industry of death museum or CCHR without 
talking about Hubbard's hatred for the mental health industry mm -hmm. and and sort of where did that come from? Okay, so that's like a show in and of itself. So how did he get going on this uh, this kind of war against psychiatry? A lot of people have different theories on it. Uh, everybody kind of assumes that I think you and I talked about this. The letters. Yes, you were actually in doubt about those. Do you want to? Do you yeah. want to? Do you want to tell the story? Yeah, I'm really one? in doubt about those. So I, when I was not at Gold for very long, I did a film, uh, a quote unquote public film, meaning they show it in in the public spaces of orgs where anybody could, Joe Blow can just walk in there and you know and mm -hmm. watch it. Called the story of Book One. And it's essentially the story of, of how book uh, Dianetics, which they call book one, uh, came into existence. And it features a bunch of scenes with, you know, a, a body double that we'd shoot over the guy's shoulder at the room. And then that was kind of hovered. It's a very awkward way to personalize somebody. But, you know, that's what you're going to do because you're not going to hire like uh, an actor to portray him until he's probably been dead for 100 years or something. Um but the two characters that are being depicted, they're Joseph Winter, who was a doctor, who was on the board of directors of the original Dianetics Foundation. And then what's his name? Uh, Joseph Campbell. Um, Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. who was a towering figure in the world of early science fiction. He was the editor of Astounding Magazine. He wrote a short story called Who Goes There, which was made into a film called The Thing which is a really famous, it's been made twice, and it's mm -hmm. a really famous sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's a, a tentpole of science fiction, especially of horror, science fiction horror. So uh, there's this little scenario where Hubbard says, I'm going to give it away. I have discovered this new science of the mind. I'm going to give it to the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical, I'm going to offer it to them for free because this is just too good to sit on, right? Mm -hmm. And so then he's in the film, he meets back with his two cohorts with Campbell and Winter, and they get these letters. They're looking at the letters and they're scratching their heads and and they're letters of rejection. And like, I think, I don't remember which was which, but one of them said, and this is the thing that really disturbed me. They both rejected it. And one of them said, uh, if Dianetics amounts to anything, I'm sure we'll hear about it. And I'm thinking that's the weirdest thing to get in a rejection letter. For one thing, if Hubbard had actually proposed those, it's just not how the world of proposing things works. He wouldn't hear back. You just wouldn't hear back. If they're going to completely reject it, they're not going to write you back. They're just going to disregard it. Plus, just consider this. By what manner did he propose it? Was it a book? Was it a manuscript? Was it mm -hmm. just a letter that said, I have a new science of the mind. Do you want it? What was it? I mean, whatever that proposal was, it would have been super important to Scientology. This is the proposal that he sent to the AMA and the APA that was rejected. It doesn't exist. There's no reference to it. Right. So what I believe is that as he was, and and so then uh, Campbell and, and as the story goes, Campbell and uh, Winters say, one of them says, well, Ron, you should write a book. You should write a book about it. And then is when they hook up with this textbook uh, a publisher who's published it as a textbook, happened to be a, 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 a publisher who tech, who published text, uh, psych, psychiatric texts, right? Mm -hmm. Texts on, uh, and there's this shot in the film in Hubbard's Treatment where the assembly line 
of books rolling out the assembly line of psychiatry books. And then some guy walks in and he shoves those all out of the way. And then you see Diane Lux books coming. So it's it's an obvious, you know, symbolic reference to to um, Dianetics replacing psychiatry. So I've always, like, I always thought, well, he's writing this book and the book's taking off and it's getting popular. Well, why wouldn't you create some mythic material about the book? Like, why wouldn't you say, yeah, this is the book that the APA and the AMA, they reject it. They don't want you to know about it. That's right. And it's not that that's what the letter said, but so at a certain point, just based on my own, like, I guess you would call it r rational, what do you call it? So, uh, motivated reasoning? No, just rational thinking. Oh, like just thinking about it. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you... just and thinking about it and actually not just going, oh, not taking it as real, but saying, trying to imagine in your mind what the actual narrative would be. And I'm thinking, there's no way that ever happened. Because if for no other reason, forgetting the fact that the language in the letters is completely ridiculous, and it's exactly the kind of thing that Hubbard would write if he wanted to self-aggrandize, you know, if he wanted to yeah. create this this kind of like today, he, he those would be tweets. You tweet that. You tweet it and you'd say, what the AMA doesn't want, you know, there's a mental, uh, there's a way that you could, you, there's a mental therapy that is so powerful and so easy. You can do it yourself. And look, it got rejected. Like it was marketing. Those letters were marketing. And, um, but putting that aside, just the fact that the proposal doesn't exist. Like what did he send to them? Exactly. Like, because like, he what? kept everything. I mean, the archives yeah, of L. Ron Hubbard yeah, are impressive as to what they have. Yeah, they've kept things they should have shredded. Yeah, but, yeah uh, exactly. They've got letters, responses, yeah. lectures, green disc yeah. recordings, magnetic yeah. recordings. I mean, they've got so much stuff of Hubbard's. Yeah, and, but when he wrote the treatment and, to that film, he there was no scene of him writing the proposal. There was just mm -hmm. him saying, I'm going to offer it to them. And then there was a rejection letter. You never saw any of that. So mm -hmm. I'm convinced that it's a complete fiction that that ever happened. Right. Um, I mean, I, 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 he even kept his own self-hypnosis notes, the affirmations, which Jerry Armstrong dug up and which ended up in court oh, in the right, 80s. Right. right. I mean, right. Hubbard kept everything. The guy was a pack yeah. rat with his own stuff. Yeah, it's was, a point uh, worth making only because you're spot on in, in pointing a whole, big, huge holes in this and saying, hey, wait a minute, where's the damn proposal? Where yeah. are the responses? Is that something he just threw in the, is that the one thing in that time period he threw away? Like, that's yeah, fascinating, I, you know? Yeah, I just thought if it existed, it would exist. Exactly. Like, it's a great it's, point. So, it's he a was a hoarder. <laughs> he was. With his own yeah. stuff, he was. Yeah, he had journals he from when he was a Boy Scout. He had diaries. I mean, we have these things, yeah. or, or we have copies of them, but we don't have this proposal. It's a really good point you're making, and it also does check the boxes for influence and manipulation because how do you get people interested in something, make it look like it's being canceled? Make yeah, it those look, guys, right? those guys over there, they rejected my work. That's right. It's that scarcity that's, component that we talked yeah, about. They're the, the status quo. That's the mental health industrial complex. That's right. They're that's the right. status quo. Look, I have a letter here. They rejected me. Now, don't, don't you, aren't you interested in reading what I wrote? Exactly. This and this is 19, 
1949-1950. Yeah, it's before the book came out. So. The the MLM industry and the and the idea of selling people things that they don't need was already well along. This is this, this as an industry that was going sales and all that really? had, that, that had taken over, right? Oh, absolutely. That was back in the 1920s. MLM started. Oh, okay. um, yeah. and vitamin therapy and supplements and right. and wellness right. stuff. They didn't right. call it wellness stuff, but self-help activities were already flourishing. And Hubbard just wrote, literally put himself on that wave. And, and I think um, in, in pursuing this line of reasoning that it was not only a great marketing ploy but it all, and, and a tease, but it also set up Hubbard as a competitor. They rejected me because I'm a, yeah. uh, I'm a, this is my yeah. competition and I'm going to knock them, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point we could talk about my own particular feelings about Dianetics having some legitimacy as a, what do you call it? As a, uh, oh man, why did that word escape my mind? Uh, as, a, as exposure therapy. Oh, okay. As a, as a very light form of exposure therapy because that was an emerging uh, therapy back then. And I mm -hmm. think he picked up on a lot of that mm -hmm. and kind of tried to tried to shoehorn it, kind of tried to just you know mold his own version of exposure therapy. You know, the idea, and exposure therapy is, is not, from what I understand, it's not a first-line uh, therapy. It's like, it's, it's something that they go, you know, but, and it's helped, exposure therapy has helped a lot of people, you know, it's like people with anxiety and they're like either re-envisioning or actually exposing themselves to the thing that causes their anxiety. And Dianetics is a little bit of that because you are returning mentally to something that is traumatic and you're, you're exposing yourself to it. Sure. It might be the only thing that has any legitimacy. And yeah, I, I I will definitely push back on that, but we don't have to have that debate. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Now. No, but, I, but some legitimacy. I'm not even yeah. saying a lot, but but I believe that it's based on exposure therapy, and I think because it's inadequate, it's also very short lived. I mean, I'm not right. promoting this at all, right, um, right. especially the short lived aspect of it. Um, so, but my point is, we, we got off into this because of the anti psychiatry thing. So yes. a lot of people credit those letters with being, you know, that's it, throw down the gauntlet, they rejected myself, this word, but I don't buy that because there was, I think it 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 doesn't go back to that. I, I just, I'm not sure what, why it started. I just, I don't think it started there. Well, when did know. Hubbard do first, do you recall when it was that Hubbard first started talking about that? About psychiatry rejecting them and and how bad they well, were. Well, I, I only know it from the film, from the uh, mm -hmm. from the story of Study Talk, mm -hmm. from his accounting and writing this thing. Um, I'd have to look it up, but I will. I'd be willing right now to bet that it happened. I'll bet he started bad mouthing them after the bad reviews of Dianetics that were coming yeah, I, out I of the medical profession. Too. What? What year was the FDA raid? Oh, that wasn't until the 63. But in 1950, late 1950 and early 1951 is when Hubbard started getting lambasted in major media. Uh, that Dianetics itself as a topic, right. as a subject, okay. started getting very real criticism from respected right. scientists and psychologists. And I think that's when... Hubbard dreamed up this story and started spreading yeah. it around. Yeah, and all, and also that was around the time of the 
Alaska Mental Health Enabling Act mm -hmm. when that happened, because that actually happened before the church was ever founded. We mm -hmm. jumped on that bandwagon. That's mm -hmm. a pretty complex story, but that actually it's kind of worth going into because it was such a horrible crime that Scientology, that L. Ron Hubbard specifically committed in trying to destroy what was intended to be a, a, a to end corruption in Alaska, mental health corruption. And right and actually bring some real help to the indigenous people of the Alaska Territory. And um, to this day, they still lie about it. I mean, David Miscavige went on the Ted Koppel show, and he even relayed about it, about how science, because of Scientology, uh, there's, there's, they put a stop to this, they called it Siberia, USA, um, and I don't even know that Miscavige knows the real story. He might just be. I was wondering the same thing. I'll bet you Miscavige was just parodying the party line without ever having. Yeah, even and known. because when I read about it, I just bought it. You know. Yeah, I, me I too. Me too. And As a it's total bullshit. Yeah, it's yeah. total bullshit. It's it's. I mean, we. I, I think that because that was in the early fifties when that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, uh, to try to make it simple, because you yeah, viewers got to crunch it down real quick on this one, because it's a big yeah, story and there's a lot to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, it is a big story, but essentially, there was uh, in the Alaska Territory there was a very corrupt system of arresting mostly indigenous people in Alaska and 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 accusing them of what was a crime of being mentally ill. And then they would send them to a hospital, a prison hospital in Oregon, which was owned by a corrupt banker and politician who was a friend of the president, Teddy Roosevelt. And it was this horrible thing going on. So somebody thought, oh, we're going to set up a trust. It was the Congress decided, we're, or the Senate, we're going to set up a trust, because we're responsible for Alaska. It's a territory at the point. We're going to set up a trust of a million acres. And from the management of that trust, the money we can pull out of that, we're going to use it to build real helpful mental health facilities for the local indigenous people and put an end to the corruption. So some vested interests who were more interested in using the land for themselves, they started these rumors that that Alaska bill was intended to set up a gulag mental health prison in the United States, which they deemed Siberia, USA. Um, and then a bunch of religious fanatics and right wing groups uh, grabbed onto that idea because that was in the era when, you know, people thought the commies were putting fluoride in our water and all this crazy shit. So L. Ron Hubbard jumped on the bandwagon. I was like, oh, we got to put it into Siberia, USA. All they did was they caused a corrupt system that was exploiting the indigenous people of Alaska to continue, like the kind of thing that they say that is their mission to put an end to. They enabled this to happen. And then the bill was, the trust was defeated, creating this trust. And Hubbard took credit for it, saying, you know, we saved America from this commie plot. And you know, there it was originally reported in the Orange County Register, some wacko right-wing Orange County paper had jumped on the bandwagon and said, this is a commie plot, this whole thing. And so sometime in the 80s, it was overturned. The trust was reinstated. What land was left was about a quarter of a million acres was put into the trust. They reformed mental health in Alaska. They sorted the whole thing out. But the Church of Scientology still says, we defeated Siberia, USA. And David Miscavige went on Ted Koppel and said, Ted, you don't know it. You don't know it, but if it wasn't for us, there would be a Siberia in Alaska. Yeah. And when I did the museum, I did a documentary about how wonderful CCHR is and about the you know the the history of defeating the the Siberia USA, the Alaska Enabling Health, Health Enabling Act, 
was. And it, the thing is, it was eventually returned and defeated, but they're still claiming the victory of it. It's one of their tentpole stories that they'll tell you. That's right. It's an so, old story. Hubbard referenced it in more than a couple of lectures that he gave over yeah, the years. It, That's how yeah. I first heard about mm -hmm. it. Then it was propagandized at our events. Yeah, it's absolute bullshit. David Miscavige went on Ted Koppel and said, did you know, Ted, yeah. that if it wasn't for the Church of Scientology, you could be sent to a mental health a prison just for having an argument with somebody. I mean, if you go back and you watch that that interview with him in that long section where he talks about that, and he's just like his nose should be growing. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think he actually himself knows that is absolute bullshit. Because no, today it, the tr the trust still exists in Alaska. The whole thing was reformed. It was put it into. They built the hospitals up there. Nobody was. You know, it was sent up there. It was not a cyber anyway. It was ridiculous. So it's one of those like like 1984 things where it's the opposite yeah. of what they say. Like yeah. we're for mental health, but you know we're not. So no, in fact, they actually contributed the Church of Scientology in doing what they did, and L. Ron Hubbard doing what he did, actually directly contributed to the oppression of Native populations. And yeah, then it, had it, the fucking than, nerve. In Alaska, for sure. Yeah, in Alaska, that's what I'm talking about. And then yeah. had the fucking yeah. nerve to put themselves on a podium for doing that. Yeah. And that's the reality yeah. of what happened. And yeah. that's why and I was, he, when yeah, you, when I, he, when I read you, you know, when you talked about that, I was just like, my God, I yeah, knew, exactly. I knew they'd lied, but I had no idea the extensiveness of the lie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like a I black mirror episode. It was yeah. awful. And that was before the the Church of Scientology was founded. Hubbard had put his name on that, and that yeah. that then came into the you know the whatever you call it the you know the the mythology. Yeah, the, of, the, 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 exactly the Scientology historical lexicon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It was oh Siberia USA. We were we were leading the way for human rights, and yeah, the exact was, yeah. opposite was true. It wasn't just yeah. that they were doing nothing; they actually contributed to making things worse. Yeah, they were know? arresting native alaskans they were incarcerating them for being insane because they couldn't speak english and then they were railroading them to a hospital in oregon a thousand miles from their families or whatever distance that probably a thousand miles and then they were collecting huge fees from the government right for each prisoner they had and the guy that was doing it was a corrupt banker who had helped teddy roosevelt get into office so it was it was it was like just like an early years. version of a private prison program exactly you know exactly. and, it, and yeah, it was a so. forerunner to so much of what we see now which has been recognized as a complete disaster and a complete problem yeah. having privatized yeah. prisons i mean there's just nothing good about those no so yeah. so it's an interesting precursor to all of this but i i think that that's kind of uh in the mix of why of that war that alaska thing yeah it kind of fixed it there, but I and I think you're right. It was those reviews which were scathing. Oh, they uh, were trashing Dianetics, yeah. and and in fact, one of them even correctly called out the fact that this has, without using the word, um, really highlighted the the cult possibilities, the the potentials mm. of of occultic following being <laughs> built up around this thing, and yeah. you know, talk about you know accurate predictions, and that was back in uh, I think it was November 
1950 when those when those quotes were coming out. So yeah, and there was no Church of Scientology. So. And then of course Hubbard in the next book, Science of Survival comes up with PDA chain and and yeah. this whole sort of anti-psychiatry flavor to what he's talking about. And and again, I, as you I'm sure you'll go over um, not all of what he had to say was wrong. Psychiatry in 1950 was brutal. It was brutalizing people. Yeah, MK Ultra, well that was not, Well that was that a was couple a decades later, later but that was the, really yeah. the CIA, but it was the, the electric shocks, the lithium, the um, the the transorbital yeah. leucotomies that Hubbard described, those yeah. were real things. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and there has been reform and change. And I'm not at all going to sit here and defend everything about psychiatry because yeah. I can't. Some yeah. of it is indefensible. And right. to this day, I have problems, too. And I voice some of those. Right. Right. But we're going to talk about Hubbard and psychiatry here. So please let me stop interrupting you and carry on yeah it's no problem i'm i'm so fascinated by what you're saying but i mean the museum i wish i wish that you and i could go with a camera crew oh. and walk through the museum yeah and i could say now you see this this is total bullshit now but there's a little bit of truth in this but this one is actually true probably the most the most accurate documentary in there is the one showing how during the soviet union when political dissidence yes. was uh, considered to be a mental illness and anybody who opposed the the communist party was rounded up and put in a hospital and they were basically pumped full of haldol which is still in this country a very popular anti-psychotic used by psychiatrists it's referred to as a chemical straitjacket and it's it's just a horrific thing to do to a human being yeah. which is still being done in this country but they did it to an extreme. So we had a lot of docu documentary footage about that. And also the orphanages where they had children, uh -huh. uh, they would also pump full of psychiatric drugs because it was just uh, full of specifically Haldol because it was easier to warehouse them. You know, we had shots of kids in so the Soviet Union, orphans, that were literally chained to their beds and right. just pumped full right. of of medicine so it's terrible so no in those films i remember watching i consumed all of that when i was in scientology yeah. by the way i read yeah. the books there were two books that were written by cchr yeah. people and there was yeah. the industry of death there were the documentaries yeah. i consumed all of that because i was absolutely fascinated by yeah. all of it when i was in it wasn't true yeah. crime for me it was more like it wasn't that kind of fascination it was more a fascination of know your enemy and that was and as a sea org yeah. member i considered these people my enemy and right. and those documentaries were giving me all the ammunition i needed yeah to to rationalize that belief yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's i'll tell you something funny that i don't know how funny it is it's kind of tragic there was at least one nursing school mm -hmm. in Los Angeles that had the museum on its curriculum mm -hmm. that at one point the nursing students would have to go to fulfill a, a, a requirement, a curriculum requirement. Mm -hmm. They'd have to march through there. You know, you, you'd just like, I mean, people puked at that museum. 
Yeah, there. I, I remember there. I remember the reaction shots because because um, Scientology was popularizing yeah. it actually. Because and I remember yeah. that nursing thing because that I remember that specifically. Yeah, yeah because, that was a real thing. Yeah, because the the, stu- the student nurses were going through there and there and the reaction shots of them watching these documentaries or watching these videos. Yeah, was like, uh, oh my god, what? Yeah, I used, you know, I, you know, there's the door you walk in when you first enter the museum off the lobby. Uh, and you enter. You enter into a, my idea. You you go into a a replica of a padded cell. I mean, even the TV monitor has like a screen over it in case you know you're gonna, you know, you right. can't throw your feces at it, right. but or whatever craziness would go on there. But and that's where the first video is. And I used to say like, you know, right outside that door, you should just have a, a little shot slot full of like air sickness bags so you can. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it was um, bad. Yeah, so it was bad. so yeah, the yeah, but it, it, I wish we could I mean, walk through there. It would be would fun. you would you basically agree that I mean to summate the entire experience of the industry of death museum? I think maybe we might say if you took every single horrifying thing that psychiatry ever did or was involved in, going all the way back to this, you know, sixteen, seventeen hundreds. Yeah, when, when mental health and asylums were first being dealt yeah, with in, back in, in, in England and, and Europe, right, going all the way back. Yeah, yeah and yeah, you took all there. every single thing they did, and you presented it in the worst possible light, with the with the purpose of showing that they never wanted to help, they never meant to help. It was all about con- ruthless control and money, and that's all the narrative that there is. That's kind of how it presents it. Yeah, that's real. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, when, when, of I course, mean, the reality is there are nuances to every bit of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know some people who yeah. who uh, consider that psychiatric medication has uh, transformed their lives and saved their lives. Yeah. I know people who have personally who have had severe uh, uh, breakdowns and and don't think that they'd be alive if they hadn't spent time in a psychiatric ward uh some of them are are better than others some of them are horribly broken Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's kind of it's it's sort of like you don't know what you're gonna get when you fall into that industry you really don't it's it's, right it's it's one of those i mean it's it's endemic overall of our lack of understanding of human nature and what you can do to actually help people. I mean, it's just right. like, and, and you know, the, I, there's a book uh, that I highly recommend. It's called Mad in America. Let me get the title here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Written by Robert Whitaker. Uh, he's a science writer and it's basically the history of schizophrenia, schizophrenia in America. But the title of the book is Made in, Made, Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really good book, and I use that. That was the central source. Uh, and I tried to get Robert Whitaker on camera for an interview. He's a very noted science writer, but he didn't want to have anything to do with us. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> no, no, no. There was a lot of there was a yeah. He just it was what he did. There are full on anti psychiatry movements out there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Who the, will the, tell the, you straight uh, up? We ain't Scientology. Don't yeah, connect us with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wrote about this. That one of the problems with CCHR, one of the problems with what they've done is people who are not 
have nothing to do with Scientology, but who are trying to reform psychiatry, they have to open up by saying, hi, you know, my name is, I'm anti-psychiatry and I'm not a Scientologist, you know. It's That's just, right. That's they, right. They just kind of, they just kind of have to do that. But um, yeah, because especially the drinking of children, you know, I, I read a study because I did a lot of research when I was doing the museum and the, the over the over drinking of children, especially children who have been diagnosed with ADHD is a big problem. And I read a study, I wish I could give you a, actually a citation on it, but mm -hmm. I don't have it that they took, I don't remember how many kids, but a large cohort of kids who were diagnosed with HDAD and put on Ritalin or Ritalin type drugs. And it turned out that 80% of them had sleep disorders and that when they handled their sleep disorders, the ADHD went away because when a kid is really tired, they become jittery and overactive and the, the physiological effects of sleep deprivation in children mimics, even in adults, can mimic ADHD. And so rather than handling the sleep, underlying sleep issue, then they get put on drugs. And I have a feeling personally that the you know, maybe they needed their tonsils out or whatever the thing was. Mm. But I have a feeling that the problem was actually higher than 80%. But you do run into these things, right? These where there isn't enough uh, scrutiny by psychiatrists of underlying uh, physiological problems. Well, I will certainly I will certainly agree with the fact that there is a lack of multidisciplinary approach to our health issues. Yeah, overall, right. I mean, I will yeah, definitely, yeah, overall, I will definitely, we, we don't need to get off. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that. in terms of how can I agree with you, because I've, yeah, no, I've, you're so right. I've pushed just... and pulled on this view, this anti-psychiatry yeah. view for years. Yeah. I mean, I let me tell you in case you don't know, sure. and, and, and this will help with the audience as well, that there were two things that within a month of leaving Scientology's headspace, of, of first waking up, there were two things I tackled head on. Gayness, H LGBTQ right. community, right? The beliefs and yeah. psychiatry. Yeah. And I dived, right? This was the very first research I did after I got out of Scientology. Yeah. yeah. And I found out that I was completely homophobic and completely off the rails as a Scientologist uh, in, yeah. in regards to LGBT matters. Yeah. I had no idea what I was talking about. And right. I dumped all of it, right? And I learned. And I learned and I listened right. and I learned. Uh, to the point that I became involved in that community. I have friends in that community. I married right. someone in that right. community. That's you know I'm I'm definitely dumped all of that and that all happened. You're back as in, close to gay as you could get. Right? I, well, I tell you, I mean, I can see it's a spectrum now, and I get it. You know, I yeah, really I do, right? And it's and the whole choice thing and all that. You know, I don't look at it the way L. Ron Hubbard did in the mid fifties. Right, right. You know, morality of it and all that. It's like screw right. all that. So that was something I dived into hard and I wanted to resolve it and I did. And then there was psychiatry because I thought to myself, do I hate psychiatry because L. Ron Hubbard tells me to or because there's something really awful about it, right? Or is it a mixture of both or what's the problem? What's the deal? And I dived into the, having consumed all the anti-psychiatry literature Scientology had to offer, literally everything. I then started reading the positive side just to get the other side of the coin, right? And realizing mm -hmm. that, oh, there's nuance, there's gray areas. Yeah, transorbital leucotomies were, you know, absolutely insane. <laughs> and lobotomies are like, what are you, crazy, right? And electric shock yeah. and all these things. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, but you see also that 
it's not this homogenous monolithic industry where everybody's marching in lockstep or where there's no science being done or where stu yeah. every study is illegitimate because it has a psychiatrist as the co-signer. That's not true either, right? There's yeah, a or, lot or funded of, by big pharma. Well, yeah, exactly. Or every single thing funded by big pharma is awful. What instead, yeah. and this is the awful thing about kind of our society is I'm not trying to give psychiatry a pass because it's got a brutal history and there are things they're doing right here and now that are not really very cool and I get the pushback on it. But we have a bigger problem with how our society consumes and uses science. And let me, let me just make this quick <laughs> comparison and I'll be done and Please. we can get back. If you dive into the scientific literature about influence and emotional behavior and emotional and what influences people emotionally, you will very quickly find yourself in marketing research. You will not find yourself in therapy research. You'll find yourself in marketing research. How do we influence people to sell them things is something that yep. has been studied you know, by yeah. by the by the palette full right of scientific papers on that topic, right, right? Versus the literature on how do we use emotion based therapy or trauma based therapy or you know how do we use emotion or what do we how do we figure out what emotion even is, so that we can help people. You know, the literature is about this much versus, you know, pallets of information right. about how well, to sell a, people things. Right. Psychiatry has had a similar history, you know, in terms of where is the research going? What are we studying it for? Are we trying to help people or are we trying to control people? And right. that's a real moment when you realize that <laughs> you know that was a not a pleasant yeah, no, moment for sure for me. i mean i mean you know, you know we live we live in a capital we live in a market-driven civilization we do and yeah. so naturally people are going to want to know like i got a bar of soap and it's just the same as his bar of soap essentially but what the fuck do i need to do to get them buy my bar of soap i mean that's right. so much of there's so much of that and it's kind of ironic because a lot of the research that i did and in developing successful campaigns for Scientology was stuff that I learned from the world of research psychology. Right. So right. It's just because that's where the good stuff is in terms of the science of choice, which is really what it is. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the gay thing. I mean, I had most of my cognitive dissonance was in that because mm. I was always pro gay rights and had gay friends. Mm. And, and I used to, and we could talk about that as a whole subject, but especially working in the Sea Org where there's just so much gay hatred and mm -hmm. having to, you know, I was, I would never get in trouble for it, but I was always calling them out on the gay stuff. Um, I think one of the funniest conversations I ever had with a Sea Org member was, uh, it was all over the map, but one of the things was it was that that thought experiment. Well, but if everybody did that, the race would cease to exist because nobody would have children. Well, apparently those people didn't read Heinlein. Was it Heinlein and the baby factories or was it what's his name? I get confused, uh, but whatever. Mm. OK, they didn't. Re you know, it's like I know so many gay people that have children and statistically the outcomes of kids growing up, growing up in gay homes is better. They're more educated and they make more money. But I, and she said this to me, 
but that, if everybody did it, that, that would be the end of the race. Well, and I said to her, but if everybody joined the Sea Org, that would be the end of the race because you all don't have children. And yeah. so I'm like, you tell me if you're going to use that as an argument, what's the difference between being in the Sea Org and being gay? Okay, so, That's right. I used anyway. to use the exact same argument as a Sea yeah. Org member. I would have said oh, the good. exact same thing to you. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, it, it, well, then we're never, you know, it, it, the, the ultimate outcome of that is the end of the human race. So, yeah, duh. And that was as far horrible... as I had to think about it. I mean, thought stopping cliche, yeah. right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's a horrible, horrible attitude. And the fact yeah. that it's backed up, it has a scientific basis. Uh, the the hatred of gays in Scientology has a, has a quote unquote scientific basis. Mm -hmm. The same way that hatred of, 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 people who are genetically inferior had the scientific basis of eugenics that's right Ex same, same way, logic they they have a scientific basis in the emotional tone scale yep that would scientifically back up why these people need to be exterminated like literally that's right we got a way off the track here. Yeah, a little bit a little bit yeah. not, not not too far actually I, I mean we I, are talking I about think, psychiatry and scientology i think those are those are important <laughs> issues to, i think those are important issues to talk about I mean, yeah it's like uh, especially their anti-gay stance, which is just yeah, it's awful. They, they lie about. It. I mean, they're not even as forthcoming as the Mormons that are like, well, yeah, you can be gay and be a Mormon, you just can't do gay, right? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I had a very dear friend who left. I'm not going to give you any details, but a gay person who left, and this person was, uh, um, you know, being handled for being gay, mm -hmm. and. They kept asking, what did I do wrong? Because they weren't in a relationship or having sex. Mm -hmm. They kept asking, what did I do wrong? They couldn't get an answer. There was no answer to what they're doing wrong because what they were doing wrong was being gay. So that's right. Yeah, it's, it's really tragic. I mean, I, it's, I'm so glad that that person laughed because. Oh, no, that's it's it, all you have to do. It's not a matter of, of, of what you did wrong, it's the fact that you exist. It, that's that. that's yeah. the problem in Scientology is that you exist as that, you know, and you don't even have to do yeah. anything. You, yeah. And, you, you know, I, I mentioned before that I think one of the most attractive things about Scientology, like when I get in, I really needed help. I was addicted to drugs yeah. and I needed a community and I needed support. And But I really responded to the idealism because I think that that's a big component. And I just have to say, you know, I'm close with a lot. I w was very close with, well, especially everybody at CCHR in LA, the, the international management of CCHR, who, who are, they're not staff, they're CCHR staff, they're not Sea Org members, um, they're public Scientologists. There's a lot of really idealistic people there that mm -hmm. really believe that they're protecting children and protecting mm -hmm. patients. It's not just some um, scam to make Scientology look better, not to them. So, and I just, I really feel for those people because when I, you know, my, I mean, I've had, negative experiences in the with psychiatrists personally and with interviewing them and so forth we used to call out we would make these videos and one of the things we would call out call them out for is spending 15 minutes with a patient and then giving them a prescription right and then checking back in with them six weeks later to see if the prescription's working and it's if not adjusting it and boy we thought we really had them this is an expose right Mm -hmm. And I did an interview with a psychiatrist and I mentioned this to him and he went, he was like startled. He's like, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, no, that's correct. You don't get it, Mitch. That's what right. we do. We that's... diagnose, we give drugs and then we adjust the drugs.
That's right. And and, and basically, it's a guess to begin with, because they're not sure which one's going to work or blah 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 blah. But you know, that's that's one thing I I really wish would change because it's just like, as you mentioned, the multidisciplinary thing. Yeah. There's kind of so many angles you need to come in at on a very distressed person. Well, I'll tell you, I feel like it's dereliction of duty what psychiatry has been, you know, sort of reduced down to now. And if you're going to spend eight to 10 years becoming a medical doctor, licensed medical doctor, and then go do your psych residency and psych education and become a psychiatrist on top of that, you have a solid bedrock of information on which to treat somebody that goes beyond writing them a script for 50 you know with a 50 minute you have all the knowledge to do the sleep study to do the nutrition study to dive into their body and figure out what's up and 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 they just don't do it and that's the part that blows me away is you have all this education yeah right why aren't you using it you know, in terms of doing therapy with people. Yeah. Or then, yeah, then you have a clinical yeah. psychiatry. You could have you, you, clinical psychology. You could dive into, yeah, you have all these different treatment modalities. Yeah, they don't, you they don't could do also they do, they yeah. don't do that either. Yeah. There's a lot of good tools to help people. I know oh, that tons, tons. And yeah, I know so- that there are some psychiatrists here and there who do try to do, you know, what, for lack of a better word, I will say a holistic approach. I don't mean some pseudoscience, you know, alt medicine thing when I say that word. I mean going all at it, you know, full body workup, full medical testing, full, there's all kinds of things they have the power to do as as medical doctors and they just don't do it, and no, that's they don't do it. that's where I get so confused. Yeah, I mean, because they're, they're they're still shocking people and full, pumping them full of hell. Also, they'll shut the fuck up. Yeah, that happens. So, but maybe we could talk about some of the more wacky stuff. Mm. Um, but getting back to Scientology's version of psychiatry, yeah, like yeah, as bad as this wacky, is, like Scientology no, makes it back, worse. You know? Yeah, I mean, getting back to Hubbard's battle with psychiatry. I yeah. Mean, like when he went full frontal on his fight against them, you know, he started to then say, oh, they've been around for trillions of years. They're <laughs> actually the cause yes. of every problem that mankind has. Like they're the reason that we're here on this prison planet. And um, he came up with this this thing. I'm just looking at a note here. Uh-huh. Uh, the Markabs, the Markabian. Yeah, who are the Markabians? Yeah. Well, the Markabians, they are the most active uh, civilization in, I guess, the our galaxy or the universe. Mm-hmm. Like, they're an existing civilization that is run by psychiatrists that has control over us on Earth. This stuff gets really crazy. I have notes on it here, but I'm not I'm not really finding them. And so people need to realize it's not just an opinion like we think kids are being overdrugged and electroshock is bad. And this is being brought to you by the same people who used to perform lobotomies out of a lobotomy mobile, which mm-hmm. was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Guy who did he drive around neighborhoods and husbands who were upset that their wives were too, you know, too uppity. They just get their wife a lobotomy. Yeah. But it goes back to this crazy, you know, space opera stuff that 
were basically being controlled by this other civilization, the Markhabs. Did you ever read the Farsec reference? No. Okay, so you haven't seen that then. Okay, are you aware of it? No. It doesn't ring a bell. Well, let me let me tell you a little bit because since okay. you since this is not familiar to you and you're bringing up Markabians and the whole track stuff, the 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 stuff past life, you know, space civilization stuff. I have not read this reference. I never was exposed to it when I was in Scientology because it is an extremely high-level confidential reference that you'd have to dig up on Sir in order to find it, their computer right, system. Right, right. Um, and you may not have ever even had clearance to read it, but psychiatry apparently originates from the planet Farsec. No, I did not. Yeah. I, I don't think it's because I didn't have the clearance. I just think I didn't have the opportunity. Didn't go look it up. Yeah, probably true because you seem to have a pretty wide... Um, clearance up there. You read all kinds of stuff. Um, like yeah, you know, I I I seen. did the restoration of all the confidential films. So right, but yeah, it's a um, it's a it's a one of those things. It's it's as difficult and rare to find or find reference to as the Duke of Chug references. Oh, right, yeah. it's like I this very. The, I, I, yeah, I've, read about the, I've read about the Duke of Chug in reference to computer systems. Yes. So you did see that. Yeah, I, I've read about Chug. Yeah. That yeah. Was, yeah so that crazy. it's about that level, right? It's like very like a handful of people have been exposed to this, right? Very, very, very few people in Scientology. Know well, I think everybody anything. in income, right? Everybody in No, income, but how right? many people are in income? About twenty? Yeah. You know, I mean there's not now, that many people. Probably, yeah, oh, it's right. and it's never been that big. Income has always been tiny. Yeah, so, yeah, right. I never... yeah. And, and, I mean, uh, very few people <laughs> in the Scientology world. I have right. said that OT3 is learned about by about 5% of Scientologists. That sounds about right. Yeah. You get one in 20, right? I think yeah. one in maybe, you know, out of all the Scientologists who have ever lived, I think it's probably about one in 20,000 that have seen the Chug reference. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Like it's a yeah, small right. number of people. Same with the Farsec one. So I can't quote from it because it's never been leaked. We've only heard about it. Right. But it's this planet Farsec. That's where the psychs come from. And uh, and they have been around for millions and billions and trillions of years doing uh, doing in this universe. Yeah. Yeah. Like every problem we have is caused by these psychiatrists. Yeah. And then right. there was, I mean, I have a, he he described the Markibians of consisting of various planets mm -hmm. united into a very vast civilization, which has come forward up through the last 200,000 years. Um, he basically describes them as a civilization that contains automobiles, business suits, fedora hats, telephones, spaceships, the civilization which almost looks like an exact duplicate, but is worse than the standard U.S. civilization. Right. So, yeah. So this, and then there was Smirsh. You remember Smirsh? <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us what what you know about Smirsh? Because I've gotten well, this, I've gotten this a yeah, little I mean, wrong in the past. But, but what? I've you gotten were... I've gotten it a little bit wrong in the past. Go ahead and tell us. Oh, oh, what? I, yeah, what I know about Smirsh is like old time Sea Org members would kind of talk about stuff, but mm -hmm. the word Smirsh it was actually a real thing mm -hmm. uh, that the Russians invented. It was actually a, a real intelligence operation, and then Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond books, he used Smirsh 
as the evil villain, you know, the billions, you know. And then Hubbard, I actually wrote a note here. Um, he claims that there's a secret cabal that controls all of the banking interest on Earth, which yes. is called Smirsh, and uh, which was originally coined by Joseph Stalin in Russia. That term, the original Smirsh operation, was actually a, a Stalinist thing. And um, so he, Hubbard believed, he put forward, that Smirsh controls the the world's banking system and they do so with psychiatry right and, and and you know it's just this crazy stuff but and I, I don't know when this i mean i always imagine that when he was working with a bunch of young people like at la quinta and stuff and uh, that that's when he would sort of sit around and and sort of you know spin these amazing tales which people believe so uh oh absolutely he started yeah. this in the late 60s in fact this, that would, yeah that would make sense yeah this all came out of um a kind of if I, I i only have a sequence of events i don't know how cause you know how correlated or are connected these dots are right right but here are the events is he gets kicked out of rhodesia he starts um, hiring private investigators. He sets up uh, Mary Sue as the guardian, and he sets up the guardian's office, and he starts becoming incredibly paranoid and uh, is setting up Scientology's intelligence system. And this is still when St. Hill was still, when he was still running St. Hill. Then he goes, then they lose tax exemption in 67. He takes off goes onto the ocean. Mary Sue is still building up the spy network uh, under his direction. And by 1968-69, he's writing about international conspiracies. In 1967, he does RJ67, where he talks about the, the bankers. Right. right. And he names Smirsh and uh, other government agencies in a 1968-1969 time period, and he's set up this entire narrative that the governments of the world are colluding against Scientology, and the psychiatry is their military arm, is their, is their, their, their brainwashing arm. If you run across these guys and you run afoul of them, they will kidnap you, brainwash you, or... LSD you into a drugged, you know, catatonic zombie state. And he names some names of examples of this. I think he said Hen uh, Henry Luce's wife, the Time Magazine owner, publisher, was, mm -hmm. was a victim of this. And this is the story. <laughs> and that's all started in that th couple year time period, concurrent with the building up of the Sea Org. And the start of Freedom Magazine in 1969, where he starts publishing this stuff in writing. And mm -hmm. that's where all of Scientology's conspiracy theories come from. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he just carried on the narrative through the 1970s. And by 1980, right. he was absolutely convinced the FBI was infiltrating Scientology, was infiltrating LA Org, was, you know, was taking over the mission network, was taking his money. He was so paranoid. He saw Martians and FBI agents everywhere, which ironically right. was his own definition of type three, <laughs> you know, of psychotic. Yeah. And he was doing it. Yeah, well, I think the big takeaway is that when you drive by the Museum of Death, the Industry of Death Museum, when you think about Scientology's opposition to psychiatry, you have to remember that it also includes these kinds of completely outrageous uh, 
you know, conspiracies and, and, and urban myths and stuff. Yeah. So, it's not just a simple thing of war against shock treatment and the overdrugging of children. That's right. And that's what sets them apart from the other anti-psychiatry <laughs> yeah. groups. Of course. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why the other groups are like, get the hell away yeah. from me, right? Because they don't want to have anything to do with CCHR. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's they, really interesting. Yeah, they, they, they very smartly left the smirsh portion <laughs> out of the museum so right right well anyway. how interesting i'm curious when you were putting all that stuff together mm -hmm. um designing the layout of the museum designing the uh -huh. the contents of the museum and and yeah. really kind of being the production designer on the whole thing at least yeah. as i understand how that how that term is used yeah yeah yeah, yeah. who who was your approval person is this does this all go straight to miscavige or were there uh -huh. layers to this no it was just here. It is. Miscavige goes. Looks great. Let's do it. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I was. Uh, yes, I wrote about it in my book about whole the whole thing. No, he was. Uh, yeah, he was actually quite helpful during the whole thing. Wow. Uh, in terms of uh, not in terms of providing editorial help in terms of writing, but in terms of yeah, he was desperate. That thing needed to get fixed. I mean, I mean. The thing was a disaster, and they were shutting down a block, two blocks of Sunset Boulevard, like on a Saturday night, I think it was. Yep. You could look it up. It was December 17th, 2004 or five. I'm not remember um, the opening. But, okay, so get this, Chris. It, it takes a year to get a permit to close down two blocks of Sunset Boulevard on a weekend. Mm -hmm. Probably any time. You need to apply for that permit a year in advance. And he'd al he'd already made the announcement. Well, Mike had actually made the announcement at the IS event that the thing was going to open on December, you know, you know, uh, December seventeenth, or maybe they Friday. Didn't have a, that was a Friday. Yeah. Okay. Friday night. The opening was a Friday night, and you can imagine the chaos on Sunset Boulevard on a Friday night. Uh, so, you know, if we didn't make the date, they'd have to wait another year. Or oh. who knows? Maybe they'd never get the permitted again, just because you know the crying wolf on the whole thing. So. It was so much pressure to get that thing done. I mean, I was just like, I don't think I slept for like six weeks. Although I think I would go home at like 4 a.m. and come back at 10. And some of the uh, senior members I was working with were like, that's like a country club schedule. <laughs> you pitching about <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because you and I were comparing notes, and I'll just say this here, is I was on the RPF at that time. Yeah. And I distinctly remember building or contributing to building helping build yeah. the receptionist desk for the cchr museum which yeah. was built at the pack mill on pack base yeah. in the big blue buildings yeah. and it was this it was this um uh, mdf monstrosity it was so heavy because we had built it on with wheels. This very thick <laughs> yeah it was supposed to be on wheels but we had to bring it downstairs and things like right. that right and 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 when it came to how the rpf did things we called it um we called it egyptian style in the in the style in the tradition of the building the pyramids right you're just right, picking sure. up those blocks and moving them right you don't got yeah. wheel schmeels we don't need any of that right and um and we had to carry that thing down three flights of stairs into a truck, drive it over there, unload it, and it had to be pristine. There could not be a scratch. There couldn't be anything right. wrong with it, right? 
So I think you and I were in the same room for a very brief moment in time in 2004, right before that opening, right? I spent a lot of time there. Yeah, and, and I did not, but I spent that much time there. But we had spent weeks building all of that furniture, building those things for that location. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the RPF, that was the one of the very many, many projects we did. Yeah, and you guys did great work. I have to tell you, man, yeah. the place was beautiful when we finished it. Yeah. I, I I had a I brought a guy in, a museum designer who had done the Museum of Intolerance in West Los Angeles. Oh. I brought I just brought him in, and I took him on a tour when we had torn the whole thing apart. And I said, "Listen, I've never done this before. This is what I want to do. I want to do this, 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 this." And he said, "Okay." We talked about one of the big issues was when you there's sort of a science to exhibition design mm -hmm. in terms of how long people are willing to stand before you give them something to lean against before you give them something to put their butt on which is called a perch before you give them a chair so there's a lot of these things you have to learn right if you want to keep people uh you know interested and not uncomfortable so i got a lot of information from this guy and then when it was done i brought him back and took him on a tour right before it opened and he was like really impressed. The thing that impressed him the most is there's a thing called look back, which when you walk through a museum, you never look back. You always look forward mm. when you walk through an exhibit like that, like the Museum of Tolerance or the one in Washington, D.C. It always has a forward flow, right? Nobody mm -hmm. ever goes backwards. But you have to very much pay attention. Like if you go through one of those and you look back, it's not going to look right. You're going to see air conditioning ducts and you're going to see stuff like that. So... Um, we paid a lot of attention to the look back because the place was so small, right? Because, you know, so it needed to be 360 degree immersive, which it was like every place you looked in front to the left, the right behind you, there was something to look at. And the, he guy was blown away. He's like, he couldn't believe what we did in such a small space. So, uh, yeah, it was great. And everybody who worked on it did great work. Unfortunately, it had some things in it that were not yeah. traumatizing to look at and then we're complete bullshit like there was a there was a rogues gallery of people who had been supposedly destroyed by psychiatry and you had Ernest Hemingway and you had even like Don Simpson who had been a Hollywood producer who at one time controlled Tom Cruise's career along with his partner uh, uh, what's his name you know Rockheimer uh, yeah, Jerry Brickheimer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I yeah, Don Simpson didn't fucking die at the hands of psychiatry. He was, had snorted so much coke that he sat on the toilet and fucking had a heart attack. Okay. So, I mean, it's a really well known story. Uh, and he had actually been in Scientology for a while. He was clear. Don Simpson. Really? And, oh yeah, absolutely. And he had oh, really that's nice one day. I didn't this, I didn't know. This is a whole you know, and 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 Miscavige knew him because he he knew those guys because he was hanging out on the set of uh you know, those guys did Days of Thunder and right. uh uh Top Gun. Right. 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 That's right. So Simpson so Bruckheimer were guy. the producers of the eighties. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, Simpson Bruckheimer. And oh, then yeah. Don Simpson died. Yeah, they actually rose to fame. They were at Paramount. This is just like nothing to do with what we're talking about but they were actually had a producing deal at paramount and and paramount wanted to dump them because they didn't like them so they said let's find a script that we know is just the kiss of death so they gave them a little unknown film called flash dance <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And to their credit, they took this shitty little script and they made this really wonderful trendsetting film. Mm -hmm. And that put them on the map because Paramount was entirely wrong about them. And then Don Simpson did Jerry Bruckheimer. I'm going to get fucking murdered for saying this shit. Don Simpson did Jerry Bruckheimer a big favor and he just decided to check out because then Bruckheimer became, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest successes, you know, everything Michael Bay ever did almost and, you know, all the pirates of the caribbean films and like he's the uh, producer on treasure right oh yeah he's just like yeah a major dude but yeah don simpson was in scientology um i kind of know this because i dated a girl for we lived together for a while who had had been a girlfriend of since people are going to be writing me like how would you tell talk about that shit (laughs) but um so i got a lot of in like she would, because I got this girl in the Scientology, and she would say, "Oh, she was still friends with Simpson, and like they'd have dinner or whatever." And she'd say, "Yeah, he showed me. He has all these Scientology books, and he went clear, and he, you know, he was like living in in Steve Paley's a guy from CBS, big exec. He was living in like his his pool house and doing Scientology, Jesus. and uh, he credits that with like getting his career started. And then he just went completely off the rails and just started doing lots of drugs and." Wow. And, you know, and, and was just like a, he was anyway, whatever. Huh. So I kind of, I was sort of, then my former wife worked for Simpson Bruckheimer as a script in the script development department as a reader, right? Uh, so then I was hearing stories from her about Don Simpson. So I, for some reason, like people were always giving me these stories about Don Simpson, but Simpson was absolutely in Scientology. He'd absolutely gone clear. And he knew wow. David Miscavige. Both those guys knew Miscavige. Wow. And then he, yeah, but he had, a drug, a whole had a drug yeah. problem. Interesting. Yeah, he did. I mean, he sorted a lot of cook. He really came into the office. It, it was kind of tragic. I mean, uh, yeah, there's, uh, in a, there's a book about him. And in the book, there's an interview with the coroner uh, who uh, was saying, yeah, and was talking about his death and what his last meal was. And the last thing the guy ate was like, like uh, Sarah, Sarah, what's the Sarah, the pastries? Sarah Lee? Yeah, Sarah Lee. Uh, like, last thing he ate was like Sarah Lee pastries. And the writer was like, that's amazing that the field of, of, of forensics, you know, medicine is like advanced so far that you could even tell the brand, right? And wow. the, the, the forensic person, the coroner said, well, we found part of the package in his stomach. Oh, so, oh God. <laughs> so, oh, God. Yeah, so apparently wow. he was pretty loaded when he was like eating those Lee. He was just eating the whole package. Hey, listen, respect for the dead. I'm sorry, friends and family of Don Simpson. I don't mean to be a dickhead about that. Wow. But um, I just didn't know he was a Scientologist. That is very yeah, interesting. Well, he had done Scientology. I wouldn't call him a Scientologist. Well, clear is but pretty whole, far along, whole, you know? I mean, yeah, but my, yeah, it's pretty far. Yeah, it is. And he'd done a Purif and da da da. Yeah. I mean, that's but, that's kind of committed when you're that far along. Although, you know, yeah. Nicole got all the way to OT3, and she's certainly not a Scientologist. So I don't think she ever identified. Yeah. But my point is that Don Simpson was there's this like uh, like rogues gallery in the CCFR right. Museum. And there's all these people that had died from supposedly being in the hands of psychiatry. But Don Simpson was one of them. And, you know, Kurt Cobain and. And on and on and on. Marilyn Monroe. I don't know how they. But then there's, you know, uh, what's her name? Um, Frances Farmer. I just couldn't remember her name. There we go. Yeah. So she was on there and Frances Farmer was absolutely, you know, she was lobotomized and electroshocked and and just because her mother was crazy and and messed with her life. So, you know, there'd always be something truthful about that. 
Oh, well, sure. It's a mix. I think that there is an interesting observation, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, regretful, maybe. At least for me, the way I look at it. Um, that, you know, I did a lot of work in Scientology that I was very proud of when I did it. Right. That I had to learn things. I had to learn how to code. I had to learn how to write. I had to learn how to do public speaking. I had to learn a number of skills in Scientology in order to accomplish my job that were not my job or were part of my job, kind of, right? Or were job adjacent or whatever. Right. And I can't look back at any of those and go, I can't show it to you. I don't have it. You know, all that code's gone. All that work is gone. All those writings are gone. Um, Org magazines, promotional pieces, even videos I made. I I first Mm -hmm. cut my teeth making video for Scientology, doing a recruitment video for the Twin Cities Org when I was there. Very first time I ever shot film and edited it, you know? And... I think it's interesting how it how how in the course of your life, in the course of being a professional, in the course of being a cult member, <laughs> you know, uh, we can even look to you know Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> I will continue to butcher her name forever. Just re- remember, like reefer, like smoke a reefer. Reefer, okay. Riefenstahl. There. Riefenstahl. There you Riefenstahl. go. There we go. Nice association there. Yeah. Um, we can see talent being utilized by these groups for what are at the end of the day pretty nefarious ends and yet the quality of the work is still the quality of the work and there's a bit of a ruefulness connected with that i think a little bit you know i don't know what do you think absolutely yeah i mean there's some very talented people i mean there's people at gold i wouldn't walk across the street to piss on if they were on fire (laughs) because i just care so you know i just whatever but there's a bunch of really talented people up there and there's a lot of people that really care and they're very idealistic and they're sort of sucked into this whole thing. And there's a lot of, you know, you talk to, to military guys who come back from war and they're like, you know, you talk to about the ideals that they're fighting for and they'll tell you, no, man, I was fighting for the guy next to me. Yep. And and there's kind of a lot of that, that camaraderie, even though, you know, you have, like, I've said it before, like, you don't have friends in Scientology, you have friendlies, because you can't confide in anybody. So if you can't confide in somebody, they're not really your friend. They're your friendlies. They're people you're really friendly with. But there is a kind of a camaraderie, especially up there, uh, especially in the in the filmmaking unit, uh, that is really unique, especially, I mean, they're kind of doing it for each other as much as they're doing it for anything else. So right. the ruefulness is, there is a rueful thing about it, because it's like, I mean, I did a, a lifetime's worth of work. I got nothing to show for it. So, I mean, I do have experience and skills, and some of the work that I did is out there, you know, that's on the network or t- ads or whatever. But, you know, and I have writing skills. I mean, I had writing skills before I went there, but I did a ton of writing, and I think it's reflected in the book that I wrote. So, um, yeah, because I think it's not just a good story, but it's a well-written story. But uh, so, yeah, I, I, I get your point. It's absolutely a point. And yeah. those are all, in your case, what you mentioned, those are really useful skills. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. I've been putting them to use in my life as best I can. And, you yeah. know, I'm not yeah. at the top of my game and I'm not even pretending to be. I'm just kind of trying to do the best I can. But it's yeah. But it's, it's but you, interesting you, how you invest so much of yourself in these groups. And 
And when they're destructive cults, you really just don't get anything to show for it at the end of the day, you know? Not at the end of the day. I mean, my basic statement on that was if you work for the Church of Scientology long enough, you will become eventually humiliated, traumatized. The work that you will do will be credited to others, and you will be blamed for things you didn't do. And that's like the natural evolution. That's right. So, you know, right. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to say it. It's so. Well, it's really characteristic of the kind of groups we're talking about. It's characteristic of, of, yeah, of like, yeah. why do we call them destructive? You know, I, go, I return to this question often because yeah. I want to remind people. Yeah. These are yeah. not benign groups, right? Scientology is not a benign group. It's not just yeah. another group of people in some new religious movement who are just figuring yeah. out their way. It's an authoritarian high control group that destroys people. And yeah. here we are, you know, yeah. uh, you know, after decades, you, me, you know, we're, we don't have anything to show for any of that. We have a future that was hopefully going to be a lot brighter than that past. Right. Right. You know, and we're trying to kind of put a cap on it so we can move into that future. Right. By acknowledging all the crap right. in the past. That's what this recovery process is all about, as far as I'm concerned, is figuring out what the hell happened to you and how to deal with it so you can move on. You know, and that's that's kind of what this is all about. So I I hope that um, I hope in in our little way here, you know, you telling your story and you getting all this information out and unloading about all this stuff is at least helping in that direction. Right. Well, I think I know we're going to wrap it up but on that line. I just wanted to say one thing, you know, yeah. poking my head, poking my head out as I have out of the bubble. And that's more than that. But, you know, immediately a couple of people reach out to me and they want to ask about family members. Did I know them? How are mm. they? Uh-huh. Um, and it just really struck me uh, as like, what kind of a group is that where you could just decide to leave it? And then all of a sudden people are saying, hey, do you know my sister? Did you know my parents? You're like, you know, I haven't seen them in forever and I can't talk to them. And it really hit home. But also, additionally, I got a friend request from somebody on Facebook and I thought, oh, which I use Facebook for like friends and family. I don't, mm-hmm. It's not a plat. I don't consider it a platform. It's just too much of a cesspool. But um, I got this friend request and I thought maybe it was like, you know, an OSA bot. Mm. And uh, so I sent a message back to the person and say, hey, do I know you? Because I don't connect with people on Facebook unless I know them. And uh, just because that's how I do it. But anyway, so she said, uh, we didn't, she said, no, you were suggested to me. I haven't figured out why. It turned out that when she was 16 years old, she was uh, had a cocaine habit. And her parents desperately sent her to a group where she was uh, to a, a rehab, which was really a cult where she was uh, raped and really mistreated. And uh, it's it, it's a thing that's known about. It's it happened in the '80s. It's been on 60 Minutes, and she told me about some other people that she is associated with who are also survivors of the cult. But the amazing thing, she said, "Look, we watch the Scientology stuff. We watch the other stuff because it helps us. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have a platform. We're just such a small, tiny segment." And we, she said uh, that she watches the Scientology stuff. And she's like, wow, same story, different day. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in terms of not the sexual 
uh, abuse because there's not a lot of that in Scientology. You know, it's a very sex negative. Uh, Scientology is dangerous in terms of the way it controls people's sexual behavior, not so much in terms of abuse. I mean, Danny Masterson's an outlier, and there have been a lot of sexual abuse in Scientology, but it's not its thing, right? It's no, it's not. A, it, we can certainly say it's not a dogmatic principle like it is in no, so many other groups. Yeah, it's not. It's a very sex negative organization. That's right. But it's just the fact that we don't think about it, you know, especially you, you're an old, you're OG at this, that this, the platform that you create, there's other people that were really abused. Oh, yeah. They're watching this stuff because it's, I didn't know this, really, I experienced mm -hmm. this because they, it's helping them to heal. It's helping them to understand their own experience. That's right. So, you know. No, I, I, it's a great observation you're you're coming to there because that is absolutely one that we all have along the way of realizing, oh God, you know, this is the same playbook as these other groups. And I have had the pleasure and, and honor, really, of being able to, you know, of being reached out to by people from groups exactly like you're describing, small groups, yeah, and, and, never and, gotten and any media, you know. Yeah, they're looking at your stuff and they're recognizing their trauma. Exactly. They're looking at what you're saying and that they were just like in some horrible little group that's right. You know, 16 years old, being sexually molested and, you know, this being taken advantage of. It, it, kind of this particular group is part of this, um, what do you call it, the troubled teen yeah. industry. That, yeah. You know, it's kind of part of that whole thing. So, yep. it's, it's you know, it's important work. It's good work, you know, to, to be it because you're inadvertently helping a lot of people. Yeah, that's the whole. And it, thank you. And yes, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, well, perhaps your story then will be part of that healing for other people. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I hope so too. And with that, we will go ahead and uh, call it quits for today. Uh, we, I, I still have two pages of questions to ask you about of other things. So I <laughs> we know we are going to talk again. Right. Um, but yeah, we think we've reached a good place today. So thank you, Mitch, for sitting down with me and, and your contributions here today. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Chris. It's always a pleasure. You bet. Absolutely. And folks out there, I hope you found this in, uh, entertaining, informative, educational. That's the whole point of this channel. And if you want to support the channel, of course, you can sign up with uh, Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, whatever. Links are in the description section below. I've now created a link tree. So you got one link to rule them all. It's all everything you can get to from there. So check that out. And, um, and on that happy note, uh, I will see you guys soon. Bye-bye.